right, welcome back to the Film Cafeteria, everybody. I'm Scott. And I'm Brittany. And today we are discussing True Gems. Yes, these, True Gems. These are films that we uh, have either found along the way or have discovered more recently in some cases that we just love that don't normally get spotlighted. Yeah, more like a diamond in the rough. I mean, you hear about some of them, some a lot of them you don't, Yeah, and they're kind of not... They're not mainstream. Yeah. They're not really mainstream. Even when the time they came out, they were kind of like an independent film. So mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't really see them. But they're the ones that like shaped me a lot. Yeah, like what's really, really interesting about the movies that we ended up picking when we looked when I looked over kind of everything we picked, almost every single one of them is made by a major voice to some degree or another in cinema, right? Like whether mm -hmm. it's Todd Salons or Spike Lee yes. or William Wellman, like these are all like kind of major voices in cinema, but these are films of theirs largely that have either kind of gotten lost in the conversation or are only known to like a small group of people. Like yes. they're not really kind of, you know, like when we think about John Cassavetes, we don't necessarily think about your pick at the front no. of the line but like that is kind of to me that's a major Cassavetes film yeah but to most other people they don't really think about it I don't think like kind of at the very forefront of the conversation about him so I think that this is going to be kind of cool to spotlight some some different movies yeah and um yeah so I guess we'll just jump into it so we each have five films mm -hmm. that we're going to talk about and um I guess I'll go first yes Cool. Um, so in my kind of like number five slot or kind of the first one that I'm going to talk about is um, The Big Boss, a Bruce Lee film released in 1971, directed by Lo Wei. And the uh, synopsis is a young man sworn to an oath of nonviolence works with his cousins in an ice factory where they mysteriously begin to disappear. It's got Bruce Lee... James Teen. The the movie was originally written for James Teen. Um, Shishin as the manager. Um, uh, Maria Yi as uh, Chow Mei, who was just awesome in the movie. And um, Marilyn Bautista, who I had like a tremendous crush on as a little kid. And uh, <laughs> it's just like a crazy movie. I mean, I think that the thing, it was also produced by Robert Chow, who was like one of the big martial arts kind of producers of that time but specifically when we watched it together i picked the english language dub and that was kind of how i first saw the movie but more specifically it was really kind of wanting to hear the music again that peter thomas did mm -hmm. and when the movie was released in Hong Kong, of course, that was not the soundtrack. That was the soundtrack <laughs> of the dub that they did. And it wasn't really known until a little bit later. I think like in kind of like the mid 2000s that uh, Peter Thomas was actually the guy who went in and recorded those, the, that soundtrack. Um, but it's just a movie that I love. Like this was just one of those movies that I saw this on. So I saw it actually under a different title. Because it was originally The Big Boss. That was the title that it was made under. Then it was changed. At one point, there was a consideration to change it to call it The Chinese Connection. Yeah. 
as kind of like a we're going to kind of ride the success of the French connection. We have this whole entire storyline with heroin in the you know stored inside of the ice. Um, but then they end up not they ended up not calling it that. They ended up calling it the Fists of Fury. And then the Bruce Lee movie, The Fist of Fury, wound up getting released as The Chinese Connection in the U.S. Okay. So when I saw it as a kid, I saw it as The Fists of Fury. Yes, I think I did too. <laughs> and I saw it on a VHS tape that probably does not work anymore because the amount of times I watched this movie over and over and over again. Yes, our household was a big Bruce Lee fan, so we had like the yeah. entire like collection of Bruce Lee films, mm -hmm. so it was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess kind of like, like when was the first time you saw this movie? Was it just kind of generally just as a kid? Or? Yeah, it was as a kid because um, mm -hmm. my dad was a big Bruce Lee fan, yeah. and my and we became that because my dad would show us all yeah. the movies, and he would know all the actors in it and stuff like that, and he would like name them and call them out when he was talking about um like to name a few i think john sexton was one of them yeah yeah. you remember oh, yeah. he was yes and he, he had an enter the dragon yes enter the dra yeah. dragon so that's one of the ones that we just watched a lot growing up because yeah. my dad was a big fan so he had like all the movies to bruce lee yeah i i think when i think of enter the dragon the the guy whose movies i ended up watching a lot of weirdly was bolo who was in the movie i don't <laughs> yeah. really know why but i ended up finding like a little collection of his movies one time at like a a um uh, like an Asian video store and got it and watched all of them. Those were interesting and wild. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess, like you know, like one of the other things I was curious about was like, where are you kind of, where are you kind of with martial arts films in general? Oh my goodness. Okay, so now mm -hmm. I can say that I don't really pay attention to them all that much anymore. Mm -hmm. But when I was growing up, they were yeah. a big thing for me. I loved them because I love the choreography of the fighting i love the action pack of everything because i grew up with like bruce lee mm -hmm. and um what is the other um actor name the thai actor uh tony jaw oh yeah tony jaw yeah, yeah like i grew up with those so like it was in my household it was mm -hmm. really big and then my one of my brothers fell in love with um with a lot of martial arts films and he started showing me stuff like um what is the other one? Oh, I'm so sorry that I keep drawing a blank. Um, it's the one that came out in theaters. You're talking about like Ip Man? Yeah, and Ip those. Man. Yeah. And it's some others. And like uh, um, Yes, yeah. um, all of those. My brother started I, introducing me to those films. Like when I was like teens to early 20s, yeah. he started introducing me to those because he was a really big fan of even mm -hmm. the Shaw Brothers. Like, he was a yeah. really big uh, fan of those and he collected all the movies to, like, martial arts films. I was gonna say, I think the first movie that we all saw together was Man with the Iron Fist. Yes. And me and him stood in the lobby and talked about Shaw Brothers movies for, like, 45 yes, minutes. because yeah. he has the collection of, like, all of them. Like, he yeah. was, he's a big fan of martial arts. So. Yeah. Yeah. This was a fun one for me to go back to because I haven't watched it in years. I was very, very thankful for um, the way we ended up getting to watch it was uh, the uh, Criterion Collection release, like kind of a collection of Bruce Lee movies that I had picked up. And I was very, very grateful that that exists because we were able to see it kind of in high quality. Yeah. It was also weird watching it in high quality and with <laughs> a slightly different dub because it is almost like seeing a whole new movie that I'd never seen before 
because I'm watching it with this like, you know, it's not this crappy 16 millimeter print that's been <laughs> transferred to VHS. It's And also some of the dialogue is different. That was the other weird thing that I was oh. realizing is that as I was watching it, there were lines that they were saying and in my head, I was like, oh no, that's not right. That's like how like oh. ingrained that movie is in my head. That Even though it's like, it's not wrong. It's just because it, it's a dub, you know, yeah. so it's not right or wrong. <laughs> but I just realized that there are some differences between whatever dub I grew up watching Versus that one. Versus the one that is now on the Criterion Collection, which is listed as the original English language dub. I don't really... okay. I'd have to do a little more research to really understand differences in terms of these specific dubs. Okay, and I wanted to ask you, mm -hmm. so what, what made you choose that one in particular like you said it had an effect on your childhood too, mm -hmm. but what to what degree that made you actually put that on your list as a true gem and like you said it's your number five so mm -hmm. what kind of order do you have it in or is it in any particular order no it's not really any it's in the order of what i want to talk about most <laughs> okay okay so it's your fifth one of what you want okay yeah got it. so like it's it's kind of um each one that i'm kind of going through like i i'm I have a little bit more to say, I guess, like to some degree or another, yes. but I also talk a lot, so <laughs> it's probably about the same for all of them. But in my head, this was going to be a really short one. <laughs> um, in terms of like the effect that it had on me, like, I mean, I, I chose this one just because I had, um, I actually had a conversation with like a group of like five guys that I work with who were all talking about martial arts movies because the raid part two is up on Netflix. Yes. And I started mentioning all these different martial arts films and they didn't know like any of them. Oh. And it was mostly Shaw Brothers stuff and stuff that Robert Chow had produced. And I was like, oh wow, like you get, okay. And I was like listing all these different titles and they were like Snake and Monkey Shadow and King <laughs> Boxer. And they were just kind of like, I, I don't know what you're... <laughs> so then I mentioned like some Bruce Lee movies and everybody knew Enter the Dragon. Mm -hmm. but nobody knew this movie mm -hmm. and this was kind of the movie that helped elevate Bruce Lee but it was also my accidental introduction to him mm -hmm. I my brother was watching like, either he was watching this movie or he showed me this movie I can't really remember which one because I was so young but I remember right after I saw it I was like I want to dress like Bruce Lee I want to <laughs> be Bruce Lee I want to cut my hair like Bruce Lee I want to like wear slip-ons like Bruce Lee like I, I was like just unbelievably taken with it and I had never had that even though it was completely subconscious there's nothing I was it was like at the forefront of my brain about it outside of like this is amazing yeah but it ended up like weirdly informing so much of what I like today yeah. without really even realizing even down to like the narrative conceit right like i had called this out when we were watching it that i still love movies that like will just kind of shift the narrative entirely like halfway through and that was an element of this movie because through the whole entire kind of like beginning of it the james teen character like you really think that he is more or less the lead and that bruce lee was in this as like an ancillary character Mm -hmm. Through the whole, like, first 30 minutes, if you've never seen the movie before, you're like, oh, okay, so this was Bruce Lee's first role, but he was a co-star. Okay, I get it. And then there's this big narrative shift where the James Dean character is killed, and the rest of the movie is, you know, 
him going after Bruce Lee going after these guys for revenge, you know, slowly but surely going after them for revenge. And I still, to this day, I love movies that will just have, and I mean, most of the movies that we're about to, well, a good amount of the movies that we're about to talk about that are on my list, like all have weird narrative shifts in them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like just this odd thing that I noticed that there is a lot of stuff in this movie that has just been ingrained in me. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes we're very attracted or very drawn to those very things. So Mm -hmm. it would make sense that a lot of your movies will have that similar connection to it. Just like as mine would have my similar connections to them because a lot of my movies are about like family and like just different weird households. Like, especially when it comes to like, decent sized families because I had a mm-hmm. decent sized family growing up you know there's five of us and yeah. then I had my mom and dad so yeah you know we were a decent sized family and we had to share a lot and, yeah. and give a lot and fight over certain yeah. things and <laughs> you know it taught me a lot yeah. you know so then I kind of I'm drawn to those kind of movies because that's the movies I like heavily relate to especially mm-hmm. when they're like coming of age stories yeah um and I was gonna say too it was pretty cool because I remember one of my big major like um, introduction into martial arts as well was Bruce Lee. And then I remember seeing a whole bunch of Jet Li movies that were actually, you know, first made in China and then kind of came over here. You remember like Twin Brothers and And, I mean, another one that I was about to say Black Mask was one that I was in love with at that time. And that was all the stuff that led him into like Kiss of the Dragon and the one and that whole kind of experience. And those were the American made ones. But I fell in love first with the ones that were made over in China first and then they came over here on video. You know, it was really funny because I was thinking about it in the context of this movie and, and I was... I, I thought a little about Jet Li, but I found myself thinking a lot as I was like, kind of like thinking about what we would be talking about today. I found myself thinking a lot more about Jackie Chan. And it was really funny because Lo Wei, after Bruce Lee's unfortunate passing, he kind of went to Jackie Chan next. Oh. And Jackie Chan was kind of the next guy that he kind of brought up. The funny thing is, is that a lot of people. I think kind of um, push off a lot of those Jackie Chan movies that he did because they oh, were kind of... Oh, I grew of, up a big fan of his too as well. Yeah, I, I did as well. And I think a lot of people push off the low-way movies that he did because they're a little bit more serious. Mm-hmm. But those were really good movies. And then, of course, Jackie Chan would... You know, for me, the Jackie Chan stuff was Police Story. That was... Oh, yes, that was That is Jackie Chan for me, like, yeah. through and through. Is <laughs> any of the Police Story movies I can mm-hmm. sit and just watch again and again and again. I love those movies. (laughs) (laughs) So with uh, thinking about kind of how your films kind of set a lot into ideas of like family and and childhood, you want to go do your first pick? Yes. Um, Mine is Welcome to the Dollhouse. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It was, the release date was in May of 1996. It is written and directed by Todd Salons. Um, And it is a coming of age black, you know, dark, really dark comedy. Like, it's so weird because I remember actually seeing this movie. Mm -hmm. Like, surfing, like, just like, like, it was so funny. The kind of surf, surfing cable late at night. You know how sometimes, like, when you're just up late at night and you're trying to take everything you in, yeah. take everything you can in, 
during the middle of the night because yeah. you got a big family uh-huh. and everybody hogs the TV. Yeah. So because everyone hogs the TV during the day, yeah. sometimes my only time that I could actually watch everything I wanted mm-hmm. was to actually stay up late at night and catch all my favorite movies because no one was in my family was interested in the same kinds of things that I was mm-hmm. interested in. I always had this very weird, I guess, awkward, kind of quirky taste in those type of things. Yeah. So none of my family, and it came to music too. A lot of music was like that for me too. Like they were just like, why do you like this stuff? <laughs> so, you know, that's no wonder that Mm-hmm. My movie kind of picks are the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I had to, like, steal. I had to steal time in the middle of the night to <laughs> <laughs> to watch stuff like this. Um, and I fell in love with it because I was surfing, like, the, inter- uh, the, the cable one night. Mm-hmm. And it came on one of those, like, m- like late movie channels, maybe, like, Showtime or Cinemax yeah, or stars, something yeah. with stars or something. Very late at night when I was, like, a teenager. Mm-hmm. But I was, like maybe like 14, 15 years old. Mm. And that was actually my first time seeing it. And then I didn't see it for years after that because I could never find it again. There was even times where I gave myself insomnia just to stay up and see if I could catch it again (laughs) because the very first time I ever watched it, I only saw bits and pieces of it. I didn't get to watch the whole thing because I came in in the middle of it. Yeah. So I didn't get to see the very beginning. So mm-hmm. I, I would see the middle to the end all the time. And I was like, one day I am going to catch this entire <laughs> film. So I, I gave myself insomnia from like staying up and I became a nocturnal animal, literally mm-hmm. from staying up late at night just to catch the entire movie. Um, but just to say also the actors... Um, there are some really, you know, cool actors that I've seen that they have not always played in mm-hmm. movies consistently, but they are like they still give really great performances. Yeah. Um, one of them is he- Heather Matarazzo. Yeah. Um, Heather Matarazzo. Uh huh. And she was the best friend <laughs> in the Princess Diaries to yeah. Anne Hathaway's character. Yeah. That's what I remember her from. That's the next thing I saw her in. I think. And, oh, Club 54. Yeah. So those are two things I saw her in after this one. Yeah. Um, I actually saw her in, it's really weird, because I remember I actually saw her in probably Club 54 first. Yeah. And I, I saw that movie first before I even saw Welcome to the Dollhouse. That was a movie I never seen until you showed it to me. That, yeah, uh, because it's a Mike Myers yeah. film that is just yeah. amazing. It is amazing. It has Ryan... Philippi, it has like it's so amazing. Yeah. I love it. I love that movie. Yeah. I don't know why, but it's like... another great spotlight <laughs> for this, even though it's not part of our list. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And then there is Brendan Sexton. He his name was Brandon in the film. He plays the bully. You know, he was like the school bully because he, you know, kind of grew up in kind of a rough home and yep. all those things. And he was trying to force, you know, the character Don, who is Heather, to try to like force her to show him affection and love him. And yeah, he even talked about, you know, I'm going to rape you. Like he used yeah. that as a form of like scaring yeah. her into spending time with him and stuff like that. And that was kind of a crazy it's, thing. But, he, you know, he was looking for something. And it, yeah. when you really look at his life and how he really was. It was like sad a lot of times because I remember in one of those scenes in the movies how he walked up to this other girl in class. She was yeah. at her locker surrounded by yeah. all these other girls, remember? And he walked up to her with a wrapped cookie in his hand. Yeah. And he from said, the lunchroom. Yeah, from the cafeteria. And he said, here you are. Um, I, and I saved my dessert yeah, for you. Yeah, I saved it for you. I didn't eat it. 
And she was like, but it didn't even cost anything. Like yeah. she had this like Jersey accent and she was just like, yeah. it didn't even cost anything. And it was so sad. And they kind of walked away laughing because he didn't get invited to her birthday party. Yeah. But he wanted to so bad. So he gave her his cookie. Yeah. And you know, and honestly, when I really think about that stuff now, I go, that is kind of crazy because that cookie probably might have been the only good thing he probably like yeah. had for dessert and stuff like that. Because when you see his home life later, yeah. when Heather goes, yeah. well, I says Heather, but I mean Don, the character yeah. Don. Yeah. When she goes over to the, his house later, you see how he lives. And I'm like, that kid, like, really, if you really think about it, he did sacrifice something. He sacrificed something just so he can be nice and be, get invited to the party just like all his other kids and, and friends because he wanted to feel part of it. Yep. And he wasn't. And that's probably what, what another part that made him a bully is that he didn't feel part of, like, everyone else. He didn't yeah. feel part of the class, the school, the kids. Yeah. So... It was really sad to watch, but it was also awesome. Like, it, it was a really good story. Yeah. And then when you see Dunn's home life, when she goes home, yeah. and you see how, because her sister is this really pretty little girl. <laughs> she's who, a literal ballerina. Yeah, she's, and I found out something about her, too, uh -huh. as outside of the film, you know, I don't think, I think, like, Welcome to the Dollhouse is the only thing she's ever played in, like, acted okay. in. But guess what? She is a real gymnast. She was born oh, in the Ukraine, yeah, that, and she that, was a real gymnast. That doesn't surprise me. Yes. She, that was kind of, she did that so well, the whole entire aspect of just being so physical in that role. It was one of the things that, so I haven't seen this movie as much as you. I don't really know it the way you know it. Mm -hmm. But I have seen it. I've seen a lot of Solange's films, and I, I enjoy his movies a lot because, you know, like, we were just watching White Lotus, and, and he reminds me a lot of Mike White in the sense that sort of, like, all of his humor is so kind of, like, far off the map. Yeah. But he is, like, if Mike White was pushed even further off <laughs> of the map. Like, it's really, really hard to explain to somebody that a character, a child character, tells another child character, threatens them that they are going to rape them. Yeah. And it's very hard to explain to somebody that you were laughing unbelievably hard <laughs> at that moment. And that's the brilliance of Todd Slons is that you can't really explain it. Like I can't really sit and explain to somebody who's never experienced this why this is funny to me. Yeah. Not only that, but when you think about in the context it's in which the he... the way it's made. Yes. And the context <laughs> in which he uses it in as well yeah. is pretty interesting because think about it. It's not like some adult is running around using that loosely. No. Because we know the severity and the seriousness yeah. of rape. Yeah. But this kid, <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like he only knows what it means, like in a sense of yeah. the word. Like he knows that yeah. he knows the act, like the sense he, of the act. And but, he knows it makes him scary. And he knows that it makes him scary. Yeah. But besides that, he, like he is not the person to really do it because yeah. he doesn't do it in the entire film. He never does it, but he uses that as a threat to to kind of get done to kind of submit to the way he wants her to be. It's also something that I realized in rewatching it that. I don't really know. I think that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily get this now that part of the joke, I also kind of realized looking back on it and I had forgotten all about this, but part of the joke was that he's kind of a benign bully, but that they're stealing from three o'clock high 
and the whole build-up to it because the whole build-up yeah. to it is literally three o'clock high, high yes. the phil wanu movie but like <laughs> it's not you know it's something just so much darker and so much weirder than yeah. three o'clock i ever could be yes and i was like oh wow that's such a brilliant little like play on what was happening there so i i love that aspect of it. yes because it, it was really great though i mean mm -hmm. It was one of those films that really shaped me because it was just so odd and out there. It was such a different, just it, it was so odd. I was like, what is this? Like, so it really drew me in. And to see something so raw, mm -hmm. because it felt so raw in the way it was filmed and the way everything just yeah. connected. Because think about it, even when he filmed it, like when you look at the neighborhood, when you look at the the house that they lived in, when you look at all the stuff around it, everything just felt so tangible. Like I could be that kid right in that yeah. movie. Like everything was so tangible for yeah. me. So that's why in it, so it really closely like was part of me because I could close, I was, I could relate to it. It's not like, you know, a lot of the films we see today where things are so glossed over yeah yeah this was not glossed over at all everything at all. was just so like natural and beautiful yes. and that's what i loved about this film so it really shaped me big time um eric mabius mm -hmm. also played in there he was like the hunk of the story yeah he was like the rocker dude you who, know how when you go to school he plays and, the title track he's the one that wrote the title track yeah. oh see welcome to the yeah <laughs> i love that every time it comes on i i sing it, it like it was really cool though so I don't know. That was a big one. I mean, for you me. were. I heard you sing it this morning as we were prepping. Yeah, everything I was in here. To the <laughs> I don't know. I, I really like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So, but I'm weird with stuff like that. But like, yeah, he was like the kind of cute rocker dude that yeah. every girl like fall in love with, or at least infatuated with. Yeah. <laughs> because like he just has that thing. He has that bad boy vibe. Yeah. He has like the voice, the look, the hair, the yeah. clothes, everything. You're just like, oh man, that's. <laughs> you know, like the funny thing is, is rewatching is, um, it was something that just kind of made me laugh just internally that it was almost an ironic take on that moment in Dazed and Confused when Floyd says like, yeah. why don't we just start a band or something? Why do we have to be in, in football? And it was almost like an ironic take on that because the dude looks like he should have been the <laughs> lead quarterback of the football team. Yeah. And instead all he wants to do is like take pictures of himself yeah, he thought he was a star like, right Yeah, he, he was, like, literally just, like, obviously born to be a star, man. Yeah. And just, like, shows up playing his guitar in, his, in her and Dawn's brother's stupid, stupid Which, band. Speaking of her brother, he is played by Matthew Faber. Okay. Um, unfortunately, he passed away in 2020. Oh. But, um, yes, he was, he was, like, one of those, like, classic or should i say yeah i say classic kind of like really smart nerdy kind of guys yeah. because sometimes you know how like he looked like a young version of rick moranis in that he movie. did he does <laughs> oh my goodness you're right about that one that first thing you're right about that that is actually very funny yes you're right second thing is sometimes like we use our intelligence uh -huh. to belittle other people yeah. You get what I'm saying? And he was one of those people to me in that movie where he kind of used intelligence to kind of belittle other people because he was so smart. Yeah. A lot of times he used that as more as a weapon. Yeah. 
and to be like, well, if you play in my band, but he didn't even care about the band. That was 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 even kind yeah, of more he interesting. Just for his college he resume. Just, yeah, because it was something different. And I was like, yeah, but why a band? Yeah, I mean, because you got someone who can actually play guitar, play and sing, and you really have no real interest in it. It was just for your college application. Yeah. So when you think about how much he judged, like the other guy. Um, Eric maybe is a character yeah. and was like yeah he sleeps with girls he just does this he mm-hmm. don't put no effort but I'm like look how much you still use him just for yeah. your college application yeah. so are we any better than one another sometimes we have to think about those things Like, yep. but it was very interesting and it was funny because I remember him saying something that really stood out to me in the mm-hmm. movie is when their little sister May, uh, Misty came uh-huh. up missing. Of course, her <laughs> that um, actor's name at the time, but that was the only thing she played in yeah. was Daria Kalanina. Uh-huh. Um, it was funny because when she came up missing at closer to like the middle to end part of the movie, um, and Don is sitting at the table, and he she was talking about how you know. Or, no, I think they were talking about almost like looks or attractiveness. Do you yeah, remember? Yeah. And even the brother could kind of almost, he had to hold back because she was like, yeah, well, you know, she was talking about like why she was missing and yeah. would mom be worried if I, you know, if I were to go to somewhere or why, how come, you know, she, it was, she was explaining something to her brother in a way that brought up attractiveness or looks mm-hmm. compared to her sister. And he was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> and then he was like, "Never mind." Like yeah. he literally just had to end it there, but it was so funny because I, and then you remember the officer even sits down at the table and I thought that was very funny and telling yep. because the officer sits down and then Don was like, will you find her? Can you, do you think you know where she is? Is she really kidnapped? Do you? Yep. And then he was like, you're the brother. And they were like, yeah. She, he was like, you're the sister. And she was like, yeah. And he kind of looked back and forth to them like, I don't get it. Like, yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. But it was so weird. So I was like, <laughs> this is the weird thing, how we look at the uh-huh. outer appearance of somebody. So I'm talking about in every situation. Yeah. It can be the smallest, minuscule, or it can be the most important situation, how we look at that outer surface of someone before we yeah. even look at the inner surface of people yeah, so for sure. even in something so like small as that like he looked at them like you're her brother and sister yeah because he saw the picture of the little girl yeah and he's just like you're related yeah <laughs> like it was so weird i was like oh like it just it hurts <laughs> like sometimes that stuff is like whoa that is yeah kind of crazy how people compare you in that way but yeah, yeah. i'm sorry i'm rambling but no, no, i mean no. i really it's love <laughs> that film so, it, so uh, well, I guess one more question real quick about this one specifically is that I'm just curious because of when you saw it, were you at that point like aware at all about kind of American independent cinema, like in the sense of where this fit in or kind of other movies? Cause this was one of maybe like 10 or 15 movies that introduced me to the idea of American independent cinema and stuff like, you know, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and Stranger in Paradise, and all those movies. This was one of, like, 15 movies I found that were just, like, oh, wow, you can make a movie with pretty much no money just about something small that happens, you know? Like, and that just wasn't really a thing to me until, like, I saw just a collection of movies and this being one of them. I was just curious, like, were it, were you aware of any of that stuff at that time or not Not really? at the time I was watching it. Yeah. No, not at the time, because at the time I was watching it, I just know that I I was in love mm-hmm. with yeah 
movies. I was in yeah. love with like storytelling more than just movies itself. Yeah. I was in love with characters. I was love yeah. with I was in love with storytelling. So because of that, I had a very kind of like tonal vision yeah. kind of perspective on that. Like mm-hmm. it was only about the story. It's the story. Yeah. I was only into the story at that time. It wasn't until I actually got a little older. Yeah. I say by the time I hit between I would say like 19 and 22. Yeah. When I really start to realize what independent film really meant and what it was and how you could make things on a low budget. Because by then I had started doing my research because when I first graduated high school, I was actually thinking about going into college at the time. I never went to college, Mm -hmm. you know, because of a lot of things that happened around that time when I was 17, 18, 19 years old. Um, But at the time, when I was first starting to graduate, I was like, when I go back to school, because I was thinking about going back, because I knew I wasn't going to college when I graduated. But when I, there was a point in my life when I was 19, 20, 21, and I thought about going back to school. I was like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to college then. I think I'm going to go. I think I'm going to go when I'm 20, 21, 22. I was like, I think I'm going to go. And that's when I first started actually doing a lot of research on those things. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was going to go to school to like major and maybe in like, film yeah. or minor in literature like I was thinking about yeah. those things because I wanted to write mm-hmm. so because of that time that's I didn't even start being really aware of stuff like that until that age yeah but when I first saw this movie I was like literally like 14 15 surfing yeah. in the middle of the night yeah. through like cable channels just yeah. like cable surfing like that's what I was doing at that time and I I wasn't fully aware mm-hmm. of what any of that meant at the time, I just knew what kind of impact it had on me. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things that it kind of shows like how different things can affect different people. Because I know for me, I was about the same age when I saw this movie. I was around like 14, 15. And by that point, it wasn't that I was like really so focused in on independent cinema in the sense of like i'm gonna make one of these you know or anything like that so much as it was like i was thinking i'm gonna write one of these yeah yeah and it was like <laughs> I, I wasn't really quite there even though i was very interested in stuff like that it was more just kind of like i i saw a couple of smaller films and i realized i was like i kind of like these better than the bigger i noticed that, that too. I, saw. I was really drawn to because you know what that's what i realized later mm-hmm. is that i had a pattern of loving independent film yeah that's actually what and, made me think i was going to be an independent yeah. like, film you know what i mean like and, you think that and then it was very interesting because then i started getting into what i would consider to be true independent films and of course when, I'm, when we're talking about independent films we're not talking about indie cinema yeah in big quotes no. because those aren't really independent films those are just smaller products yeah Yeah. like not to bash on any indie films but that's just essentially what they are but like thinking about like true independent films in the sense of movies that are scrounged together with a little bit that you have yeah and they're very small they're about you know and and they're they're kind of just made like just on a shoestring yeah and exist on the edge of their life and it's like maybe sometimes they don't even really fully work but there's something about the passion behind them yeah that elevates it so you know uh, so much beyond the means in which they had to make it yes. one of the most i think kind of like both startling and also uh most common examples that you can point to would be something like clerks yeah you know when the first time i saw clerks yeah i 
I had no idea who Kevin Smith was. I had no context for him or anything. I just saw this little black and white movie. Yeah, my aunties, like my auntie and my uncle, because they grew up in like, yeah. they grew up in the early 90s. Like yeah. my aunt was like, because I have a couple of like aunties and uncles that were, that are not that much older than me actually, because my dad is um, the second oldest of like eight children. <laughs> Um, and he's so many years apart from his youngest of his youngest brothers and sisters. Yeah. Because of that, they're not that far from me. Yeah. So I remember growing up in the nineties and being eight. I had an auntie that was only like 18, 19 when I was eight. Yeah. So yeah, like <laughs> they don't who yeah. introduced me to a lot of things like clerks and stuff like that mm -hmm. and film and as well as, um, music yeah like when i got into music you know one of the yeah. first things that i like fell in love with was um i was maybe between nine and twelve mm -hmm. and i started listening to the b-52s yeah like what <laughs> what would well, you know about the b-52s being a black girl yeah at nine between nine and twelve years old it was one of the interesting things that like the kind of um the kind of rise in, in American independent cinema that happened kind of the late 80s into kind of mid to late 80s into the early 90s, that all coincided with kind of a shift in music also, where suddenly we had grunge, we had mm -hmm. kind of industrial metal. Oh, no, we had, that's what know, I got into early at that age. Yes, you know, and, and early, yes. All of those things kind of hit at the Public exact enemy, same time. Like, Public Enemy, yeah. NWA. Yep. Biggie, Tupac. Yes, like because they have all, had all those things as well. Like they would have Tupac and Biggie. That's yeah. how I heard it because they had the CDs or the you know the CDs yeah. to them, and then they would then go like hear some other stuff. And there was funny because a lot of times it wasn't like they were directly like just giving me music and going here. Yeah. You know, as a kid, what we do, we go into things that we probably shouldn't yeah. be messing yeah. with. And I started meddling with their CD collection. Yeah, and I would just go in there. I'd be like. Auntie Yo, what is this? Yeah. Like she would have this whole big old turning spinning stand of yeah. like CDs, but it has some of everything there yeah. from like Incubus to Nirvana to Tool to yeah. it had every, and I would just like B52s, uh, Cranberries, uh, the Cardigans. Like I would mm -hmm. just serve her little spinning stand of CDs yeah. that was there, and that's how I discovered a lot of the music. Yeah, and it it was cool that all that stuff kind of coincided with one another to be able to kind of give this sense that they were all filtering in to one another at the exact same time. I mean, you see, I mean, you see something like in, uh, I think it was in utero, the, um, last Nirvana record that I believe that was the one where, like, I think there was a thanks to like Quentin Tarantino or Steven mm -hmm. Soderbergh. I think it was Quentin Tarantino is thanked on there just because they kept watching Reservoir Dogs on the tour bus. God, yes. And it's like, when you see how close all those things were together, it's really, really fascinating. Yeah, and how they influence and, kind of inspire each other because that's what I grew up with. Like all of those things melded in together for me. Yeah. So, um, a great film. Absolutely. Great film. I love welcome to the dollhouse. I loved rewatching it. Highly recommend it. Uh, I guess we should move on to the next one Ooh. as we're getting on in this pod. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, my number four pick, uh, more or less, uh, is track of the cat from 1954 directed by William Wellman from a novel by Walter Van Tilburg. Uh, Walter Van Tilburg Clark and a screenplay by the great A.I. Bezzarides, who also wrote Thieves Highway and uh, Kiss Me Deadly. And uh, interestingly, it was produced by uh, Robert Fellows and John Wayne. 
And brief uh, the synopsis is, around the turn of the 20th century, during a harsh Northern California winter, members of a ranching family are squabbling uh, among themselves while the two oldest sons are hunting for a panther that is killing their livestock. It stars Robert Mitchum, William Hopper, and Tab Hunter's three brothers. Teresa Wright as their sister, Beulah Bondi as their mother, uh, Philip Tong as their father, uh, Diane Lynn as a uh, as Tab Hunter's girlfriend that he's also trying to uh, potentially marry or you know get engaged with, and um, uh, also features a very bizarre performance from Carl Alfalfa Switzer as Joe Sam, the Native American in full brown face. Yeah, very creepy looking makeup in the movie, and you know not exactly like the best thing just to have the original alfalfa as a native american when he is very very white (laughs) very odd um and then it was also it was shot on vista vision but i thought it was interesting it was shot by william h clothier who right you know after this movie he would do blood alley with william wellman he also did the alamo directed by john wayne and he wound up doing um it was like directly after the Alamo, he wound up actually doing Sam Peckinpah's film debut called The Deadly Companions. Um, and I only bring this up because to me, one of the things about Track of the Cat that I think is the makes it stick in my brain so immediately was the cinematography that William Clothier did. And it was phenomenal to watch because I mean, you even noticed that when we were watching it, you were like, that red jacket. The movie, like, so I misremembered it before I rewatched it. The way that I remembered it was that it was three-strip Technicolor and that they pulled essentially one of the strips out. That's how I remembered it. Rewatching it, I realized what he actually did was shot it in full three-strip Technicolor and Fist of Vision. Fist of Vision is a weird thing where it's hard to explain, but it's essentially that the film is essentially flipped on its side to give a wider frame is what how Vista Vision okay. works. It's a very kind of odd thing. You can actually find a really cool YouTube documentary about it if you just go onto YouTube and type in Vista Vision. Oh, wow. You can actually come up on like a cool little documentary where they explain kind of how it worked. But I realized in rewatching that what he actually did was because William Wellman's idea, William Wellman had also done the Oxbow incident, brilliant movie with Henry Fonda. Um, What he had actually done was he decided to, his idea was to make a black and white Western in color. Okay. And rewatching, I realized that what he did was he painted everything monochromatic, had everybody wearing monochromatic clothing, and that would occasionally have something that kind of triggered the eye, more or less. Yes. You know, kind of like pulled your eye into a different direction or into something else, or, and it gave you kind of a, emotional response to that thing that was like to me just so incredible seeing that and seeing you know when you're first introduced to robert mitchum he's wearing this bright red oh yes jacket in with this, this black like line going through it yeah and his brother was wearing uh, a cow remember, hoodie uh, yes i kept talking about that i was like <laughs> why he why does he have a coat that looks like a cow yeah in the middle of the woods yeah on this big like 
land of like trees and farm. Anybody yeah. can come on there and mistake him as an animal and yep. shoot him. That's yeah. the first thing I thought of was hunter. Like the first thing I thought was a hunter, a hunter. You're yeah. like a bullseye for a hunter. So <laughs> yeah. it was so weird. And um, it was uh, very interesting that, you know, he would he would start us out with Robert Mitchum in this red. And Robert Mitchum plays such a bastard in this movie. Oh, he man. Is, he is, I can't Ro- stand him. Robert Mitchum is like, <laughs> You know, if I were a director and I could get into a time machine and go back and work with any actor, it would be Robert Mitchum. Mm -hmm. Like, it would probably be Robert Mitchum and then young Jack Nicholson. Like, those (laughs) are, like, my two (laughs) favorite actors, and and, uh, along with Sterling Hayden. Like, these are all people that I just adore, but especially Mitchum. Mitchum is just one of those people that every time I see him in something, you know, we had watched earlier this year out of the past which I didn't realize you'd never seen that one before. So it was really exciting watching that one together. Kurt Douglas. I remember you said something about Kurt Douglas before. Kurt Douglas was a, well, I mean, you're talking about for me. Yes. For I, you. I, I love Kirk Douglas. <laughs> well, I mean, Kirk Douglas stars in like my all time favorite movie. Yeah. So with Ace in the Hole by yes. Billy Wilder. So like, I love early Kirk Douglas stuff, but like in particular, something about Mitchum, there was just something about him and like, just there was, um, always kind of a melancholy to his performances, even when he was just being a total bastard, like mm-hmm. in this or in um, uh, Night of the Hunter. Mm-hmm. And you're watching him and you're just like, this guy is just evil. <laughs> yes. like, he is just like the like the physical personification of evil. <laughs> yes. But like at the same time, there was something always so kind of melancholy and tragic about his performance. I think it was just like, he has like kind of these floppy eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it, everything that he looks at, there's always kind of a sadness to how he yeah. looks at stuff. And then, you know, it was an interesting thing that I think he's one of the only actors I've ever seen that that look caused him to age into what I think many people would consider one of his best roles, which is the Friends of Eddie Coyle. Mm. Okay. And by the time he gets to that movie, that face that you've been looking at for all these years the character suddenly matches that face entirely oh, when you awesome. see him as this aging gangster yeah. who's not really even a gangster. I mean, he's kind of like an aging gun runner who's just kind of like, just tired. Like by the time you get to that movie, like he's playing this character who is just tired. Yeah. And, and he does have very sad eyes. I mean, the thing about it, they draw you in at the same time. They That's do. what's so crazy. I, I heard a great quote from him one time where he, he had made this comment where he was like, I hate being an actor. Being an actor is just being a 60-foot-tall sex symbol. And <laughs> it's like, you know, and you you get this sense that, like, I think that was what I always loved about him is even if you go and you watch, like, the – he did a great interview with Dick Cavett um, and where, you know, he – you're listening to him talk and there's like a certain amount of like, I can't stand doing this, but at the same time, it's all I know how to do. Yeah. And so that element of reservation within him that like you can tell the, what he really loves is being on the set and probably the part of his life where he gets to just kind of like, just drink and yeah. not have to worry about life. Yeah. <laughs> I think those are kind of his two favorite parts. Yeah. Of I mean, because think about it. If we all could do what we love without all the stuff that comes with it, when yeah. you do it, like, yeah. you know, sometimes it's what holds us back is everything that comes with it. But you have to realize what's worth it. I always kind of wondered with him if there was an element within him of 
somebody who would have been happier with a, a like something like the stage or even have been happier like in the context of something like today where you know i mean there are actors that we love that we look at each other all the time and go whatever happens to them then we look it up and we see they've done like 40 shows yeah but we and just movies, wasn't but, aware of i mean they're on like quibi or whatever you yeah. know there, there are places where you're never gonna see them, but they're getting paid yeah to do their work and then you go and you look up reviews and you hear that they're doing some of their best work yeah you almost kind of wonder if mitchum would have been happier with a situation like that rather than being a star yeah and it was always something interesting to me about him that like has always fascinated me but um, this was a movie though that I just love that I had, it, it's one of, um, I, yeah, it's one of two movies that it, it, this one and the next one that I have the exact same story about, which is, uh, there used to be a, um, so like after Blockbuster and Movie Stop and mm-hmm. Hollywood Video and, you know, a great video company here, uh, here in Atlanta called Movies Worth Seeing, after all this stuff closed, I didn't really have a way to check out without just going and buying it. And at the time, didn't really have the money to go and buy, like, you know, DVDs and Blu-rays yeah. like crazy. I didn't really have a way to check out movies that I hadn't really seen anymore, you know, in the context of kind of like trying to go back. You know, it was like it was easy to find newer stuff maybe or maybe stuff from like the seventies on Netflix or something. And maybe occasionally they'd throw up a classic, like it's a wonderful life, like mm-hmm. during this, this time. But like I had, and which was, you know, now thinking about it, like about like nine years ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of funny, but um, I didn't really have a way to really check out a lot of stuff. And I found this website called ffilms.org, which mm-hmm. is no longer around. And it was filled to the brim with, every old movie that you can possibly find. Oh, that's awesome. And that's how I saw this. And I started, mm-hmm. I went on like a Robert Mitchum kick and I was like, <laughs> I'm finally going to see like every Mitchum movie that I've never seen. This was one of them. I saw this movie and was blown away by it. One of the things I guess to kind of explain is that essentially half of the movie is a stage play. Yeah. Inside of the house. Yes, yeah, so it feels very much like that. And then the other half of the movie is an adventure film mm-hmm. where, and they're cut together, but it's essentially designed where it's like you're dealing with a stage play and then you're dealing with a, an adventure film of a guy tracking down a Black Panther. Yes. And they just kind of took these two ideas and just cut them together in this really brilliant way. The stage play aspect of it is so like just razor sharp and cutting and biting and just nasty and gnarly and incredible i really really love it the only thing about this movie that i'm not necessarily 100 percent convinced about is the end yeah i never even rewatching it i was like the end is the one thing about this movie that stops it from being perfect for me yeah because the 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 story you know and of course like you know when it was made 1954 like you were never gonna have a pessimistic ending like tab hunter dying but the the real ending is that fire burning and he's gone as well. And it's yeah. kind of an, and then there was none situation. Yeah. But like, of course we end it with him, you know, triumphantly becoming the head of the household, killing yeah. the Panther and everything. Like he's which, almost like, it was like 
just buy your time. Yeah, it was it, it was such <laughs> it was a, a weird one. It, it was such a tacked on ending that I yeah. really like. I'm like it's the only thing that holds it back for me from being like a really like perfect film. But it, regardless, like the whole lead up to that last five minutes to me is unbelievable. There's also no way I've never heard him talk about it. Maybe I just didn't pay attention when he was talking about the movie. There's no way that this didn't influence the hateful eight. In some way, because I was like, since I watched it, I was like, this is basically the hateful. <laughs> but um, so this was your first time seeing this movie. Yes, it was my had, first time. Had you ever heard of this one before or anything? No, or, yeah, not okay. at all. Not until you showed me. You said that was on your list of true gems, and I was okay. like, okay, that's interesting. Nope, never heard of this. And then you put it in. I thought it was. I thought it was great. Man. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. Like, so I guess for you. First time seeing it through, because this is like my, I think, like second or third time seeing it. Um, How did you feel about it, just kind of like as you were watching it and everything? Because it's, it's an odd story. It really is. Um, It was, but it was very awesome because for that time, to see things being talked about or dealt with in that movie, the same way we deal with very relevant things today, was what the thing I connected with. Because even think about when... Robert Mitchum's character Mm -hmm. was talking about how he was kind of like, how you say, almost like hazing his brother, the youngest one, to kind of like, oh, no, you're not going to marry her and he's not going to marry you. You know why? Because he don't have the butt. He don't have the balls. He don't have the guts. He don't have this. And when he gets undressed in front of his girlfriend, Tab Hunter's girlfriend, that was, oh. And that's that's the sad part that you can see about Mitchum's character is <laughs> yeah. that that was one thing he was missing because think about it his the middle brother uh-huh. had a girl yeah and now his brother his younger brother has a girl he's yeah. the only one yeah. that was unattached to a woman yeah and I think that's part of his bitterness because I think part of the bitterness is because I had to step up yeah I had to run the family business. Yeah. I had, I had, I had. Yeah. He felt like he didn't have time for that. And I think that's part yeah. of what a, some of the stuff boiling underneath him yeah. is, is that he felt like he, he didn't get a chance to live the normal life that his brothers did because yeah. they had time because he was the one running the family business and the farm and stuff. Because yeah. if he's the one doing the upkeep, where do I have time to go out? And find a woman. Yeah, I think one of the other fascinating things, too, is seeing... So I think a big burden was placed on him. That's another part of his bitterness. So if you think about it, it's kind of sad at the same time. Because you can call him an asshole in a way. But at the same time, like there was a sadness to it. Because that bitterness came from a lack of. Yeah, and one of the things that I thought was so incredible, you know, when we were watching it, was uh, that I really loved about that character was seeing how much he mirrored his mother and yeah. played by Beulah Bondi. And her character in that movie was so like, just like impossible to deal with. Like every time she spoke by the midpoint of that movie, it was like nails on a chalkboard to yes. me. It was driving me crazy, which is great. You know, it's like, <laughs> it, like, cause that's the point of her character. Yes. Right. So like mm-hmm. that was just phenomenal performance, but I was watching her like the midpoint of that movie, and I was just like, I, I'm, I want her to get eaten by the panther. Yeah, it's like, just like I, I don't want you to talk anymore. Shut yeah. up. And <laughs> seeing how like 
there was this other aspect to him looking at Tab Hunter almost kind of like wanting to say, like, what, is your mom not enough for you? You got to bring this other woman in. Yeah. And that was just such a, like, weird and creepy kind of element. Because you see that Tab Hunter is the only one that doesn't fit with the family. Yeah. Because, you know, William Hopper's character is definitely tethered to the, their dad's character. Yes, he looks very... And, yeah, they and, even mirror each other in the, their resemblance and, yeah. like, how they look and everything. And, like, I think one of the incredible things is, like, seeing, like, the... the Phil Tong character and seeing the William Hopper character, they're both two characters that are obviously very strong men that have lost their voice for one reason or another within the situation of the family. Yeah, I mean, their brother was so dominant. Yeah, and so was their mother. Yes, so was their mother. And you see how Robert Mitchum and the mom are both like this. Yeah, like, they mirrored each other's talking points. Yeah. Like every time you would hear him, you remember when I said it too, like every time you would hear him talk, I'm like, you sound like your mom, dude. And like, why do you sound like your mom? And what was fascinating was that by a certain point in the story, the dad is asking for Robert Mitchum the way a guy would sometimes ask for like a mother or a wife. You know, he's yeah. constantly saying like, where is he? Where is he? Yeah. And you're just like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. This, this is like... Because you can see who are the two heads of the family. Yeah. It's not the dad. Yeah. And maybe that's why he has to kind of drink himself away a little bit. I love the, the, <laughs> the reoccurring motif throughout the story. Oh, Where's my beautiful. bottle? Yes. And he was like, these old women, thieving women. Like he was always... Yeah, because they were always... He thought they were always hiding his bottle of liquor. And he would have... He had so many hiding places yeah. in such a small space. He did. I was like, how do you have these many hiding places? Yeah. Yep. And you remember he even hit one up in the chimney at one yeah, point. Yeah, and he pulls it down and goes, it's warm. warm. And he was like, why is it warm? And I'm like, why you hit it in the chimney, man? Why do you mean? Oh, it was great. It was funny. That was that was awesome, though. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was that's Track of the Cat. Yes. That's a movie that I love. Uh, it's a really, really hard movie to find. I know currently as we're recording this, it's on the Criterion channel. Um. But it's it's kind of a hard movie to find. But it's you know I know it's on like Apple TV and Amazon stuff for rent for like three bucks or something. And in my opinion, it's definitely worth the the three dollars to see it. Yeah, this is a phenomenal movie. But yes. um, I wish it was on YouTube because some of these movies that we're recommending are actually on YouTube, and I'll bring those up as we yeah. <laughs> as we cross them. But um, so yeah, so what's up next for you? For me, it is Love Streams. Yeah. That is the next film. It was released in August of 1984. Mm -hmm. It's um, directed by John Cassavetes. He's one of my favorite film make uh, filmmakers, one of my favorite directors. Um, the screenplay is by John Cassavetes and Ted Allen. Um, and then the actors are Gina Rollins, which is his wife. Yep. Uh, John Cassavetes, Diane Abbott, um, Seymour Cassell, and Al Rubens. So, yeah. There is some really interesting and really cool parts about this film. I mean, the whole thing, for one, because when you first showed me this film a few years ago, it mm. became one of my favorites. Um, but I also realized it's one of the ones that is hardly ever talked about. Yeah. But for some reason, it, it really leaves a big imprint on my on the things that I love about film. Yeah. And one of the two is also that family aspect, mm -hmm. how it can be so dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but at the same time, there's beauty in it. So it is about his sister, who who is played by his wife, Gina Rawlins. Yeah. Um, she is now divorced from her husband. And because she has a lot of mental issues, a lot of things going mm-hmm. on with her, um, maybe even some of them might even still be like postpartum and all those things. Mm-hmm. You can tell even all these years later. Because one thing we learn is that if you don't deal with those issues, they they grow yeah. and they multiply and become big. Before you know it, you're, you're down a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of her character. Though she wasn't consistently in it, that's what I always noticed about her rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the other movie she plays in, Woman Under the Influence. Yes, yeah. Woman Under the Influence. She was kind of always submerged in it, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. But in this one, she, it was a touch and go. It wasn't quite like she was always fully immersed in that in that rabbit hole. It's fascinating that like when you... So one of the things I thought was interesting is that it's, it's based on a play by Ted Allen. Okay. And A Woman Under the Influence was originally set to be a play. Oh, wow. That he was going to write for Jenna Rollins. And then she read some of the early stuff and was like, I'm not going to be able to do this every night. This is too much. So he reconstructed Woman Under the Influence as a film. Love Streams, to me, this might just be me, almost feels like it could have been a sequel to Woman Under the Influence. Like, just spiritually. And the way that her character is, is so similar. Yeah, it is very to, similar to how she is in that film. But the one thing you could tell the difference is she doesn't stay there no, like she does no. Woman Under Influence. Yeah. Like she stays submerged in there. Like that's yeah. her. Yeah. But in this one, she comes in and out of it. Like it's yeah. not fully there, but it comes in spurts. Yeah. And that's the part you can tell. Um, and then you could tell that she kind of has a little um, that her reality skews just a little bit, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that is purposely done on her part. Mm-hmm. And I mean in the sense of, does she just do it and say the things she says until it just feels true? So yeah. she knows she's doing it until it just feels true. Yeah. Or from the moment she doesn't realize that she's not being completely, like it's not, the perception is not what she says it is. Yeah. Just like in the beginning, how she tells like he has a problem and he needs to leave and go away. <laughs> or she was talking yeah. about her husband, how he needs to go away yeah. and figure out his stuff. Yeah. And then they can like, then he can see the daughter, but yeah. then you kind of find out it's her the whole time. Yeah. And then she says when she's, when they're in the room with the mediator and the judge yep. to kind of settle the custody battle that they're going through. She also states, well, he's the one that wants the divorce. Yeah. And then you kind of find out that it was her the whole time. Yeah. She was the one that wanted the divorce the whole entire time. Yeah. And you kind of find out closer to the end of the film that it was really, that was her narrative. But somehow she spent it and said it was his, that yeah. it was the husband's narrative. Yeah. So, and the and her daughter is that center of like gravity or that reality part of her because she goes... You're you're hurting him. Mm-hmm. Like you know that you're the one that wanted the divorce, mother. Why do you do him like yeah, this? Yeah. So it was really sad to see her try to bring her mother back to reality a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but she would just get lost in all these things. And, and the thing about it I noticed about Jenna Rawlings like character in that movie is that she would she would like when the daughter would say things like that, it was weird because it wasn't quite a rebuttal. Yeah, but it was kind of yeah. like uh, uh, like she's caught her in something. You yeah. you notice how she would not even actually finally go, no, that's a liar. Yeah, that's true. She would just kind of go, uh, uh, well, well, and and it would kind of like go into this yeah. whole another conversation, almost like she was trying to avoid the actual truth. Yeah, you know, one of the things I think is fascinating about the movie, and 
like when we watched it just recently for this, uh, one question kind of like hit me that like just kind of stayed with me, which was the kind of thing that only a John Cassavetes movie can pose, <laughs> which was that question of like, who is actually crazy? Yeah. Because you see certain things and and it's like, and it's a tragic conversation, right? But it's mm-hmm. also like, you know, as is the case with most of his films, it's also a beautiful conversation. But everybody else looks at her like she's insane for questioning, like, what is love? And they're kind of like, no, we, this is a legal proceeding. This is, you know, or, you know, like, we're talking about your daughter here. Like, everybody pushes it off and yeah. is like, you know, like, no, like, we're not, we're not doing this. Like, yeah. we're not, we're not going to crazy town. Yeah. Like, be an adult and talk about things the way that a quote unquote adult is supposed to talk about things. Mm-hmm. The thing that I thought was so fascinating watching it, it for this was that thing that it poses this question of like, so who's actually got it right and who's actually got it wrong. She might seem crazy, but her husband is the one that ends up calling her and saying like, you know, I don't want to deal with you. We're divorced, but you need to sh- come back home and deal with your daughter because that's what a mother is supposed to do. And I, I can't deal with this girl. You know, it's like he's frustrated with her at every single turn. But yet what he's asking her for is completely unreasonable. And it, it's it's a really, really but fascinating... But why do you think it's unreasonable? Well, I mean, in the sense that it's like he, he really doesn't want to have to deal with how she feels about anything. Yeah. He only wants her to just show up and do her job as a mother. And that's it. Yeah. And like doesn't want to hear anything else about it. But that's not... That's not real life. In real life, you have to hear how another person feels about things, especially in the context of two people that have a kid. Yeah. You know, you you have to be there together if you're going to do that. Like, if you're going to be there and and raise them together, you also have to be present for each other to some degree or another. Yeah. And he really didn't want to do that. But at the same time, he still wants her home and in the house and dealing with the daughter. But then he's like, but I don't want to hear your mouth because we're divorced. Yeah. So it's not my job anymore to deal with you. And that was the thing that I thought was so interesting was like watching again, you know, and it's not that different with the Cassavetes character, right? Because like with him, he's also kind of like being just kind of unreasonable because he's like a 55 year old man that is still acting like he's 22. Yeah. He's a playboy. He's like a a playboy and a a writer who doesn't write, you know, who's like, I'm writing about the nightlife, but it's like, that's like, that is the biggest excuse. Having written things, that is the greatest excuse I've ever heard for a writer because it's like, I'm writing about nightlife. Yeah. It's an excuse to like, just go Go hang out in bars at night night and do what you do because I mean, that that is the excuse of a procrastinator. That's just what we do. I mean, and I say, and I, I lump myself in there with that sometimes because I can be one of the greatest procrastinators yeah like, i can be that like i know i need to get it done yeah but it will take me forever in a day it will take you pulling my hair out to get it done so and it, it was it was like one of the fascinating things that by the time cassavetti's son shows up he's the only person that can genuinely communicate with any of these adults yeah and that's because they themselves are so it, it's interesting in the sense that it's like you can say naive or you can say, you know, childish in their, their view of things, but you could also, again, in that way, the only Cassavetes really could, you can also sub all that stuff where they're still pure. 
Yeah. Which I think is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I, that was something that I really liked about it. Yeah, I mean, and then to bring up, like, his relationship with his son, mm-hmm. you can see how easily... And if you look at it from this point of view, from his sister as well as him, you could see how easily they get rattled sometimes at great challenges. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I say that is because the moment the boy went kicking and screaming and wanted to go home, and you remember he kept hitting his head against the door, and then he goes into the house, his son, and the man comes out like, what have you done to him? Because the little boy was bleeding because he was knocking his own head against the door. Like, John Cassavetti's character hadn't done anything to his son. Yeah. The little boy was trying to get in, and he was just freaking out. And so he started busting it, knocking his own head against the door until he made it bleed. And when he came in, and then the stepfather came out, yeah. he was like, what have you done to him? And then the mother comes out after after they, they get into a massive fight. The mother comes out after and goes, no, but he's still your son. He's still your son. <laughs> and he goes, no, too late. Yeah. And I'm like, too late? What do you mean? No matter how crazy this situation gets, that is your son. Yeah. You need to man up. Yeah. Grow some cojones. Yeah. And take care of this. Because, yeah. like, you're not going to get anything done every time there's a great challenge and you go, nope, too late. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds, like, how do you how do you say too late when the woman is going, but that is your son. Yeah. I get that something just happened. I get that something just went wrong, but that is your son. Like, almost like he still needs you. I get that yeah. something just went wrong right now, but he still needs you. And he going, nope. Too late. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Too late for what? Yeah. What are you talking about? That's just another situation you have to deal with as a father. It's just yeah. another situation. Yeah. Like, it's so sad to see that he gave up that quickly. Because yeah. that little boy, he's not used to you. Yeah. He's not used to you. Yeah. He don't he don't know you. So get to know him. Yep. He freaked out because he's not used to the situation you put him in. Yeah, for sure. He you could tell he's a mama's boy. So he's 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 still under the wings of his mother. Yeah. He has not weaned off of her yet. Yep. And then for you to take him to a hotel and then leave him there all night. Yeah. He don't know what that means. And he all he does was felt the loneliness of it all, like he was abandoned. Yeah. That's what then, he felt. And then you also get a sense too that it's like he's in terms of his home life with his mom and his stepfather. That there is. Um, a lot of rage in that house because oh, he, yeah. he he talks about the his stepfather makes he, his mother cry yeah and she he, cries wishing that she was still with you yeah the you know he was like i saw a picture of you and i was uh, uh, like I, I used to have a picture of you and then my dad took it away and tore it up and there's this element of jealousy yeah that exists inside of him and you can tell this because cassavetti's character is probably a writer of some renown mm-hmm. and this guy probably works you know, a regular work a day job yeah. at a factory. Yeah. And or wherever, you know, and you know, the you can tell that there's that element of, of frustration, jealousy within that house. Yeah. That you know, it's it, it's one of the tragedies that he talks a lot about, you know, in his films of sort of like environments in which kids are raised. Yeah. You know, he, he really loves coming back to that subject. And it's, yeah. and it's fascinating the way that he deals with it. You know, he he deals a lot with relationships and he deals he dealt a lot at a certain point in his career with, with kids and how they're raised and everything. And yeah. I think it's incredible that him and Jenna Rollins have, have raised a couple of great ones, including yeah. you know, Nick Castavetes who yes. went on to direct like, you know, uh uh what was it, Alpha Dog and Yeah. 
the notebook and all that yes. stuff. So that was that was incredible. But yeah, like I love this movie. Though. Yeah, I mean, it just it invokes so much in me about like family and how we can be dysfunctional at very times. But like they are our challenges. Like they mm-hmm. are our great challenges of life, and it's up to us if we step up to the plate or not. So. Yeah. So, so I guess one other question I have for you with this one is, uh, knowing your how much you love Cassavetes and his films, where does this one stand for you and his, you know, kind of filmography? Oh, this is definitely number one for me. Yeah. Yeah, this is my number one of Sean Cassavetes' films. That's awesome. Because I don't is, know why, but it's my number. Like you, once you show this to me, I was like, we had saw all these other ones before it. Yeah, because you, this is your second Cassavetes that you spotlighted on the show. Yes, because yeah, it was Shadows, Shadows yeah. was first, and now it's this one. <laughs> yeah, but this one's the number one for me. That's why yeah. I call it my true gem. Yeah, because it's my number one for of a John Cassavetes film. Yeah, I don't know. It's beautiful. Yeah, I I love this movie. Um, so. Uh, up next, my next one is uh, Cutter's Way, from yes. 19, released in 1981, uh, directed by Ivan Passer uh, from a novel by uh, Newton Thordenberg uh, called Cutter and Bone, uh, with a screenplay by Jeffrey Allen Fiskin. And the synopsis is Richard Bone witnesses a man dispose a body and goes on a mission to expose the man he believes is the culprit with the help of his friend Alex Cutter. Stars Jeff Bridges as Bone, John Hurd as Cutter, uh, Lisa Eisenhorn as uh, Lisa Eichhorn, sorry, as Mo, and um, uh, Anne Dusenberry as the the I guess you could say the corpse's sister. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try my best not to spoil this one because I think this is a good movie to watch without knowing where it goes. It, you know, like knowing how it unfolds into its ending. Yes. Even if you already know the actual ending, the way in which it unfolds is really kind of the story of the movie. Yeah. Um, this is a movie that I love. This is the other one that I found on ffilms.org. Mm-hmm. That, uh, I, I mean, this was one of those movies that I'd never heard about this. It was just a Jeff Bridges and John Hurd movie. I thought... That sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Kind of neo-noir from 81. I was like, this sounds cool. And within like the first frame of, you know, first few frames of the movie of the, you know, opening credits going over the slow motion of the parade, I was completely taken in by this. I was yeah. like, I, I don't know what this is, but this is amazing. And just as the movie progressed, it just kept getting better and better and better and I kept getting more and more invested in it and I was like and the whole love triangle between Jeff Bridges and uh, uh, Lisa Icorn and, and um, uh, John Hurd like the whole love triangle between the, the three of them yeah. between you know uh, Bone and Cutter and Mo, and like the just the whole the, the way in which this movie plays out I, I it's one of those things that like You've seen other things that are kind of similar. I mean, I remember before we watched it, you would kind of ask me what it was about. I was like, imagine it's like the big Lebowski before Lebowski, but yeah. it's serious. Yes. And yes. that's kind of what this movie is. And that, even that, like me saying that, because I've never really known how to explain it, that's even a steal from kind of Ben Mankiewicz. You know, he was like, I don't know how to describe this movie, so I always just say it's this. And I was like, that is the only way you can kind of describe this movie to somebody who hasn't seen it without just going here's the plot yes. from beginning to end. Here's what the movie is. Yes. It is such a like kind of fascinating and cool movie that really has kind of gotten lost to time in a lot of ways. It's one of those movies that 
I, I bring it up and occasionally there's like that one person, like I, I brought this movie up to my brother and he's like one of the few people that was like, oh man, that Cutter's way. Wow. I haven't thought of it. You know? And it was like, <laughs> a lot of people just don't, I don't think really kind of know what this movie is. It's not, I mean, we saw it on Tubi. Fortunately it's available on there. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I work with a couple of Tubi heads. When was the first time you saw this movie? I saw this movie around the same time that I saw Track of the Cat, which was about nine years ago. Got you. And it was just one of those movies I watched, and I, I was like, I, what is this? <laughs> like, it, By the time you get to the end, the end is so dark and so, like, no pun intended, but so cutting that you're just like, wow. I don't know. I don't know what this movie was. And... Even rewatching it, you know, I realized how much of the movie I'd forgotten. Wow. But, like, the whole last 20 minutes, I remembered frame by frame by frame. That's how powerful that last 20 minutes is. Mm -hmm. From the moment they pull up to the house in the car and Alex is in the back seat, from that until the very last shot, I remembered that entire sequence frame by frame and I'd only seen the movie once. Mm -hmm. That is how, like, kind of much this movie kind of just wound up getting planted into my brain. Yeah. And I just absolutely loved it. And I am rewatching it, going back to it. There's so many things, you know, before that last 20 minutes, I was looking, I was like, oh, I kind of forgot all about this. This is great. <laughs> you know, and I mean, it's a movie that's fascinating because it is, it kind of tricks you by having a kind of convoluted plot that doesn't really matter because what you're really dealing with are these characters yeah and you know the the plot drives you into an ending that says a lot but it doesn't say a whole lot about the plot it says more about who these guys are together as friends and as as you know more than friends they're almost brothers mm -hmm. you know when you see how they interact with one another they're they they're kind of those people who are well beyond a friendship and are essentially a family. Yeah. And, you know, even with the relationship with Mo, that, you know, she's kind of in love with both of them. You know, she's in love with Cutter, but she's emotionally and physically attracted to Bone. Yeah. You know, by the point in which we meet them in the story, it's obvious that it wasn't always this way. Yeah. But it's obvious that Probably for the past few years, it, is, it has been. I don't know. For me, it might have always been that way. Yeah. And the reason why I say this is because of the very comment that Bone makes, mm -hmm. which is Jeff Bridges' character. Like, yeah. he literally says, what, like, what do you think? Did I, I waited too long? Or, yeah. yeah. And he said, and to say that it means there was a beginning. To yeah. say that it means that this just didn't. That those feelings didn't just come out of the blue. Yeah, because yeah. it's the way he said it. he was like, "What you think? Look, you waited too long, or I just wasn't there enough, or I like." He started yeah. talking about that in the very beginning, and that sets the tone for how you know that his and her character really is like yeah. how connected they really are. Because I'm like, why would someone say that unless this was like the beginning of time thing, almost like even before, mm -hmm. um. Which is her Cutter uh, relationship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even before her and Cutter's relationship, yeah, you can tell that there was something there with her and Bones because he yeah. even states that you know you just couldn't wait or you 
you, you waited too long or yeah. so that's who you decided to get with. He says it in so many words. He may don't, you know, spell it, you know, fully out, but he yeah. says it in so many words. And that lets me know that this was even before probably Cutter and her. Yeah. The, one of because the things... you can tell they all met around the same, you know, they all yeah. met and kind of had this dynamic. And then when Bones probably went his separate way for a while, that's when she got with Cutter. So one of the things that's always fascinating, this makes me really want to find the book and mm-hmm. read the book just to see if this is talked about within the book. The And this is one of the things I love about movies is because you can both watch the same thing and then have two totally different yeah. perceptions on something. The way I had always kind of read that relationship was that when, and I guess it's something that should be noted, that Cutter is a non-vet yes. who's come back. He's missing an arm. He's missing an eye. And he has a pretty severe limp. Yes. And he, he, he was, he, he's in bad shape post Vietnam. And the way that I'd always read it was that when he left for Nam, that bone was maybe asked, like, can you take care of her while I'm gone? Mm. And then during that period, him and Mo probably kind of quietly fell in love without ever doing anything. Got you. And then, of course, Cutter comes back, and he is a physical and emotional mess. Yeah. And she decides to stand by him regardless. This is how I always read it, which could be entirely wrong. You know, it it could be exactly what you just said. That's what I love about the movie. Yeah, because it's from Bones' words. Yeah. Like, he says... You know, did I wait too long or did I not come fast enough? Like, he said it in a way that you could tell almost if he was indicating she chose Cutter because he did not choose her. Yeah. And the way that I had always taken that was probably because of the the period that they had together with Cutter's absence. Got you. Of like, did I never... Because I'm like, why would you say that after her and Cutter's already together, that means, yes, she's already chosen. So what would that mean after? So that's, I always thought it was from the beginning. Yeah. And I I guess one of the reasons why I felt that way is because there is from the very beginning, an unspoken rivalry between the two of them Mm -hmm. over Mo. Yes. That as the story goes on, just starts to seep to the surface until eventually it is That's why it makes me their, think it's from the beginning. Yeah. That's what makes me think it's from the beginning. Yeah. That was from the start. That is not mm-hmm. something that just happened over time. Yeah. That was a <laughs> dual, like, yeah. like this girl, like two best friends love the same girl kind of dual yeah. from the beginning. This ain't no Cutter had her first and now Bone in love with her. No, this is yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. That's and, why I was like, yeah, there's no way, dude. This is, yeah. like you said, this is years yeah. of and, like rivalry. <laughs> and it's like, you know, that's the thing that I, I love about it is that it, it keeps it vague enough yeah. to where you can create your own internal backstory for them. And there, there's, there's an element of kind of like, you know, when you say that to me, I'm sort of like, oh, I didn't really look at it that way. You know, it's like, because it is so vague. But it's also because these characters are so well drawn in the present. Yes. That you're able to create, as you're watching this movie and falling into it, you're able to also mentally create an entire other movie yeah, in your backstory. head of their backstory. Yes. Because these performances are so, like, they're just so gripping. Yes. And at the same time, like, there's there's something about this movie that 
the performances are gripping, the writing is incredible, and like the way in which they're presenting the story is always, always very, very vague in the best way possible. Oh yeah, it's because the best way possible. It's I really agree. kind of going like we're just going to slide the pieces onto the table. Yeah. And we're trusting that you the audience knows what to do with them. Yeah, and it's and like I the tension it. is there. Yeah. It stays there. The tension is there. Yep. So you you can't help but to excuse my little pun but cut it with a knife yeah. cuz it is so yeah. there. Yeah, you can. It's like you can see it and you're like, "Whoa." Yeah. And it feels like something that has been built over time. Yeah. Like you can tell it's there and it's just, it's almost without words, but it's there. It's yeah. so there, but he kind of implies it in the beginning, yeah. almost to set the tone of what they are to each other. Yeah. Cause he says it and I'm yeah. like, Oh, that's pretty, that's pretty cool that you lean into that in that yeah. way. Yeah. I agree. Um, so this was kind of your first, had you ever heard of this movie before no. we watched it? Nope. Um, this was kind of your first time seeing it then. Yes. So like, what, what did, how did you feel? I, about, I mean, was, you were you were really getting into it yeah, when you were watching it, which I, was, I loved. I thought it was great because... <laughs> because we were almost 20 minutes into the movie, and you said, rewind it back to the beginning. I want to see the guy. Yes, because <laughs> I was just trying to figure out if I could tell the difference yeah. in the stature of what the difference was for the killer. Yeah. And the reason why I said that is because I was looking at, like, the build and yeah. the hair. Yeah. And I was just trying to look, I was trying to see if there was anything telling that yeah. sometimes you can easily like miss Indicate, yeah. from what was going on because he yeah. was throwing a body into a trash. Uh -huh. You're like, I might be missing the part of the killer. Yeah. So because you were so, and then you were thinking about um, bone as well because his car has stopped Yeah, <laughs> and you could tell like all these things just made you go, Maybe I was not paying enough attention to who was throwing the body in the trash. Yeah. So I had you rewind all the way back to the beginning. And I even put on my glasses because I have reading <laughs> glasses. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to see everything. I want to see every detail. <laughs> so I did. I put on my glasses and I had him rewind it back. Yeah. So I could see every little thing that was going on. Because I love like little mysteries like that. Yeah. Because, like, it makes my brain just kind of, like, fire on all, like, yeah. cylinders. It makes me want to, like, solve mysteries before the movie does. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's one of the greatest things about it that, you know, by about the hour mark, you're you're brought to a point where the mystery in the last 40 minutes always doesn't matter how it resolves. No, it doesn't. Because at that point, at least for me, I didn't really care about how the mystery was wrapped up. I cared about how Bone and Cutter were going to wrap up their relationship. Okay. And how, how their life, like what their life was going to be when they found whatever they were about to find. You know what? But that to me, that was part of it. That's why I was, that's why I love about was, it the most. Yes. Yeah. Because I was more like ready for the wrap up of the mystery itself. Mm. Like who, who killed them? Because that was part of their kind of like, I guess ongoing battle with each other at that point. Yeah. Besides the girl, part yeah. of their ongoing battle was how much like do I believe you? Because yeah. you can like for Bone is like for him he was telling Cutter like you can go so much into your wild imaginations that I don't know what to think. I don't know what how much yeah. to believe yeah. when you say these things to me. Like yeah. your imaginations are so wild. And sometimes you can tell there was always a part that kept um, bone 
linked to Cutter in that way because as much as he would claim that Cutter's imagination was so wild and too much yeah. that all his trauma from war is what's getting to you, he used that as an excuse a lot to like not Cutter's yeah. You know, all his things down. But he was putting things together based on facts while Bones yeah. was like, I don't know, this might be your wild imagination. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but that's because you're not in a place where Cutter is in. Yeah. Cutter is in a whole other different world than <laughs> yeah. you in, homie. That's yeah. the reason why he can put this stuff, this weird, yeah. strange, wild, crazy stuff together. Yep. So, and Bones is just not there. But you could tell that to some degree, there was still always a link because he would always pull in for a minute and go, I think I believe him. I think yeah. I believe him. And then yeah. he'll pull out and be like, nah, that's too crazy. Yeah. And then he'll go back in. I think I believe him. I think I believe yeah. him. So he was always tethered to him in some way. Yeah. Even when he thought he was crazy. Yep. And that, that, that was, yeah, I don't know. This is one of those movies that's like, you can do a whole episode just on this one. No, you can. Because it, it was just so good. It was it so really good. It really was. Um, one of the things I want to spotlight real quick before we go to the next film is that uh, this movie, you know what I mean, it's kind of, you can see it pretty easily. It's on Pluto TV. It's on Tubi. But there's also a vinegar, vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray that's available for it right now. Um Vinegar Syndrome is just, it, they are a kind of boutique Blu-ray company that I absolutely adore. I think what they do is really cool. They kind of preserve sort of movies like this, you know, that are sort of like kind of lost to time, but are great films. They also love, uh, they, they also have a lot of exploitation movies. They even have um, uh, kind of wild, you know, movies like Debbie Does Dallas and Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy, the, the uh, first Abel Ferrara kind of porn movie that he did. Okay. They even have stuff like that on there. I mean, it's like the the breadth of what they have on there is unbelievable. And it's definitely worth, um, even if you don't get this movie there, it's definitely worth just checking out their website and seeing what all they have available. Yes. Um, so up next? Is Paris, Texas. Yeah. Which for me is another uh, 1984 release. Yep. Um, November of 1984. Um, the director is Wim Wenders. Wim Wenders, yeah. Oh, that's how you pronounce it? Yep. Vin Vendors? Yep. And um, the screenplay is written by L.M. Kit Carson and Sam Shepard, actually. Yeah. So that's what yeah. was pretty cool. <laughs> Sam Shepard, the great Sam Shepard. I love Sam yes. Shepard. Oh, man. Okay. Going so, back to Brothers with this one yet yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. And he's an amazing, very talented writer. Oh, yeah. Um, So starring in this film is... Harry Dean Stanton, yep. amazing, amazing actor to the very end. Even when he yes. was in uh, Twin Peaks, and yes. like that was just I and loved Seven him in Psychopaths. Twin... Do you and remember? Seven... Yes, yes. <laughs> as the uh, as the Quaker. Yep, <laughs> that he kept seeing like on the corner and all everywhere. Can, can you imagine what that set must have been like to have had Harry Dean Stanton and Tom Waits hanging out? I there? know it's really cool. Like, that had to be a blast. <laughs> I would love to. to get like a, a quick audience with Martin McDonough and just be yes. like, how was it having Harry Dean Stanton and Tom Waits at the same time? <laughs> yes. And one of my favorite characters that he played is the father in uh 16 candles. Yes. So, I mean, yeah. yes. 16. It was, I think it was 16. Was it 16? No, it's not 16 or, candles. Uh, it was pretty and pretty pink. pink. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Now I remember because I remember the apartment and the place they lived in. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Ducky was there, so yeah. I remember John Cryer. <laughs> so yes, it was. Yeah. It was. Um, yes. But okay, so I love this film. Yeah. This was one of my true gem picks. Yeah. 
um, because again, it deals with this kind of really weird, kind of dysfunctional mm-hmm. family. At the same time, it's, it's about this father who's kind of, you know, giving his kid to his brother. Mm-hmm. Like he's giving his kid away because he was on a search for something. He yeah. he was he was seeking something that he was looking for, and at that moment, he could not take care of his kid. Um, he left actually the woman of his kid and his kid alone. And then she actually handed the kid off to the family um, because of a lot of the turmoil that was in their relationship. And then one of the things that it spotlights is that you can tell that she was dealing with a lot. She was very young. So you could tell that was also a kind of postpartum Mm -hmm. kind of thing that she was dealing with because she was really young when she had him because I, and I didn't even realize it until this time around how young she actually was when she had him. Because when you kind of like count the kid's age and you go, Hunter was eight mm-hmm. at the time he was seven, almost eight yeah. when Harry Dean Stanton character came back into his life. Yeah. But the mother was only 25. Yeah. Think about that. Think about that. She yep. was so young. And she probably still felt like she had a whole life ahead of her. Mm-hmm. She probably still felt like, how can I take care of a kid at 17, 18, 19 years old? Yeah. What am I going to do with this kid? Because I think they gave him to the uh, um, to the brother and his wife when he was like, what, three or four? He was four. So that means she was Harry 20, 21. for four yeah. years. Yeah. So it was really sad when you really like think about her age and how old the kid is. Yeah. And then you see that Harry Dean Stanton characters is much older than her. Yeah. He's he, much older. There's a real sense that when they met, and he even says it, you know, he went in that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scene at the end. Yes, when, when he's speaking, talking through her through the glass. Through the, through the window. At the nudie booth. Yeah. And she's on the other side of the glass and he's talking to her. And he has that beautiful line where he says, you know, like... She was young, maybe 17 or 18, and he was older and a little raggedy, you know, talking about himself. And you just get that sense that when they met, he gave her, she gave him so much youth back. Yeah. That it energized him in such a way, but he, he had been around the block enough to really actually know how to show a person a good time. Yeah. And how to, you know, like... how, how to navigate the world in such a way where they could really actually kind of see the world together. In, yes. in a sense. And, and not it, only it, that, it but you really beautiful. It was. And you see too uh, as well, how when I hear him talk about his family a lot, like his mom and his dad, yeah, you can also tell how a lot of their relationships spilled into his. Like it, it really, mm-hmm. if you really think about it, it shaped theirs a lot and it yeah. spilled over how, and you can tell that Dean Stockwell, of course, Dean Stockwell, I didn't even finish with the actors. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nastasia Kinski. Yeah. Aurori Clement. Yeah. And Hunter Carson. Yeah. Um, these are the actors in there. Well, mm-hmm. Dean um, Stockwell is Harry Dean Stanton's brother in there. Yeah. And he's the one that has his son, him and his yeah. wife. And the thing about it is so beautiful because it almost feels like he was, and this happens to every family. I can't, you know what? I can't, I can't think of one family that I've ever come in touch with or even within my own that I ever, I saw at least some part of 
like the parents dynamic or the relationship of the mom, mother and father or the man and woman somehow spilled onto some of the kids in some way. Like some of the kids like get away in a sense where they live this completely, totally different life that is nothing resemblance of their yeah. their family's life or their mother and father's relationship. And then, but some kids, it leaves an imprint on. And yeah. to me, that's what this reminded me of because you could tell it left more of an imprint on Harry Dean Stanton's character than it did Dean Stockwell because Dean Stockwell almost being like the one that got away. Yeah. I mean, it deals with that, that whole element that, you know, by and large, like we as humans are kind of echoes of our parents, yes. you know, like that, that within each generation. And some of us choose to create our own echo and, or some of us, it's just a mirror yeah, image of that. And, and it's, it's always fascinating whenever you see it, because even within, even within, you know, the, the Dean Stockwell character, the way that he talks about their family, the way that Harry Dean Stanton talks about their family you get the sense that Dean Stockwell kind of mirrors what he saw with their parents. That's what I mean. You know, even if he, in his own mentality and his own life, kind of steps away from it, even the way that, you know, Aurora Clement's character kind of deals with Harry Dean Stanton, she deals with him like a mother. Yeah. And it's it's unbelievable some of those scenes that they have together. Yeah. Like, those, some of those scenes are... Especially like when, you know, she comes out and he's polished all the shoes. Yeah. And she's talking to him. Like some of those scenes are just so breathtaking yeah. to watch and nothing's happening. It's just yeah. two people in the scene. Yeah. It's just the way that uh, I'm not a big Vim Vendors fan. I, I don't really respond a lot to his stuff, but I really like this film. The way that he cast these, these characters, all of these people had just some kind of odd emotional connection to one another yeah in such a, an incredible and beautiful way where they felt like a genuine family yeah and some of those scenes between her and harry dean stan are unbelievable but like you get that sense that his brother and his brother's wife might mirror all the way down to the fact that you know he talks he used to say that his dad used to say that his mom was from paris yeah, and then he's really married, married to, to a yeah, woman. Yeah, Dean Stockwell is really married to a woman from, from Paris. Paris. Yeah, and it, it's these odd little things that it it talks about these these different aspects of being echoes of your of where you came yeah, from. You're right because there's different aspects of it. Yeah, because that bled into Dean Stockwell's kind of life in that way. Mm -hmm. And with Harry Dean Stanton, I think what came into that way was how he said sometimes his father would get these like weird just kind of yeah moments and he how was the, jealous yeah and he, and he he was disconnected yeah you know and it, it was and how he would like call out things about the mother and that would just embarrass her yeah he said he he got these ideas about her and hunter says what ideas and he's like just these ideas and you the way he says it it gives you the sense of you know somebody who had paranoid notions of a person yeah. on one level and on another level wanted to manufacture a person out of somebody that they love that they themselves could be proud of. Yeah. And that was really sad. Especially when he said, <laughs> really just tragic. you know, my mother was such a plain woman. She yeah. She was just plain. He said she was just kind of plain. plain. Ugh, yeah. yeah. So when you think about that, you also see that on the end why he fell in love 
with uh, Nastasha Kinski yeah. character because yeah. she wasn't playing at all. She was this very to she, me like Natasha cute, Kinski is one of those beautiful oh actresses. Oh goodness, ever lived. she is such a beautiful woman, and you see, yeah, the pride that he had in that. But you know what? That's the see. Once again, I talk about that surface level vanity thing we see yeah. when we look at people. We don't go deep enough sometimes to understand who they are as people or what shaped their lives or what. But you see through a different lens of that surface level kind of like attributes because he probably was attracted to her because she was so beautiful. Yeah. But he still had so many issues. Yeah. That that overpowered the fact it was more than her being beautiful, man. Like you had so many issues that you need to work out that you ended up just being really toxic for the family. Yeah. So the beauty didn't even matter. Yep. It didn't matter. You know what I mean? So it was so funny how he states that the mother was such a plain woman and then you see the woman he was with mm -hmm. and I'm going, but did it even matter? Because you still ended up very similar to how your dad was. Yeah. You had still had similar like tendencies. You still had that same thing. So did it really matter? Yeah. So sometimes you got to realize it's, it's all about you. You got to kind of do the work on the inside for yourself. Because then you see beautiful, you see beauty and all those things and more than just looks. Yeah. But it was so crazy because like that was a beautiful film though. I love the story it told. Yeah. Because you kind of love how you found him in the middle of the desert, kind of roaming, oh. not even fully, how you say, connected with yeah. the world and what was going on and who he was. Yeah. And that was so, that was so fascinating to me because I was like. Yeah. So where have you been all this time? Yeah, you don't remember he's been, anything. He's been doing this for like four years. Yeah, that, you know, he just I, it, cut I would, himself off. And I wouldn't even be surprised if he said I was abducted. Yeah, like if yeah. if that ended up being part of the story that I was abducted, like I yeah. wouldn't even by aliens or something. I wouldn't <laughs> like kind of like yeah. he did in Repo Man. You know yeah. how it was in yeah. Repo Man. Oh, that whole man. setting. Yeah. yeah, it that it wouldn't even surprise me yeah. because he just kind of fell out of the sky ended up in the desert one day yeah. and kind of reconnected with his family the beautiful thing i loved about it is that he would he he came back and became self-aware enough to go yeah. but i'm still not good enough yet yeah i am still not fully there there's still so many things i need to work out before i can ever call myself a great dad and a man that a mm. woman can really love. I want to look like a father. Yeah, yeah I want to look, look like, what does a father look like? She was just like, "Are you? do you want to look rich or do you want to look poor? That's it's, what the maid said. In between. between. She's, she's like, like, there is no, no in between. between. You're either a rich father or, <laughs> or a poor, poor father. father. Well, then a rich, rich one. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot there that was just like really beautiful. I love the kid because he was just so yeah. awesome. He was so smart and intelligent. He was. yeah. And he had questions. And you could tell, like, for a kid to, like, know and realize certain things. Mm. And he was like, yeah, I know you're, you're my dad from the pictures. But he was so disconnected. Because think about when he was talking to Aurora Clement at that time. He said, um, do you think he still loves her? He didn't yeah. say, do you think mom or dad still loves mom? He said, yeah. do you think he still loves her? As if there's no, like... There's such a wall there between yeah. his mother and his father. Yeah. And I love at the end that what Harry Dean Stanton thought hit the woman needed and the son needed was just to be reconnected. Yeah. And to me, like, one of the most beautiful moments in that movie is when 
Harry Dean Stanton and, and, and Hunter, you know, they, they leave toward the end to go and find Natasha Kinski. Yeah. Now, real quick, as a side note, I was going to mention this when you were talking about Natasha Kinski, but I thought this was very funny. You ever notice that her accent in that movie sounds a lot like Jodie Foster in, in Taxi Driver? Does it? I, I, I didn't recognize <laughs> it, it. If you go back and watch Taxi Driver... <laughs> It was actually specifically, there's a part, because his name in this movie is Travis, there's a part where she's talking to him, she's got his thick accent, and she says his name. There's something about it where it was just the way, it's her enunciation, and it's the way she says stuff. I was like, oh my gosh, she sounds like Jodie Foster on Taxi Driver. Oh, if you go back and rewatch oh, some of it, you're going to probably crack okay. up now, because you're not going to unhear it now. Yeah. But um, one of the most beautiful parts of me is when they go looking for her, and they're in the hotel, and... Hunter turns around, looks at him, and says, I'm so used to calling her mom. Yeah. Talking about Aurora Clement's character, the Jane character, and saying, you know, I'm so used to calling her mom. And then he gives him the picture. One of the things I absolutely love, it's a detail that I'm just, like, kind of weirdly obsessed with, is that when he puts the picture under the pillow and he drops the pillow on it, the picture is on its side. Oh. And so he crinkles the photo yeah. if you pay attention to how it would have crinkled it would have folded harry dean and her in half oh wow so okay, like that's an interesting <laughs> jewel it was like one of those things that like i noticed and i was like oh <laughs> that's incredible and i don't even think that was intentional okay got you i, I think it was just an accident and i think they left in because it was probably the great the best take that, yeah. that hunter had given but like when I actually looked at like what happened there, I was like, "Oh, I was like, that's kind of fascinating." Yeah. That you know the the little photos are on their side, so when he drops the pillow, the way that they're framed, when you can see their frame, it probably would have actually folded that picture directly in half. Wow. Okay. And uh, I I love that little detail. It's like those, that's what this movie is. It's so beautiful to me. Yeah. Is is it is a two and a half hour movie of beautiful details. Yes. And I, that's so rare to yeah, find something like that. You're right. That's what makes it my true gem. I think the other thing that I I always love about this movie that we were talking about while we were watching it was, to me, the superstar of this movie, beyond even the actors and Sam Shepard and Ellen Kit Carson's writing, is Robbie Mueller as the cinematographer. And of oh, course, we previously yes. did Repo Man mm-hmm. on here, another Dean, uh, 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 Harry Dean Stanton uh, starring movie. Um and Robbie Mueller shot that also. Yes. One of the things I love is that we're watching it, we were looking at the landscape, and you had said something that I loved where you were like, the landscape looks so kind of melancholy. It does. And it's so melancholy. I always loved it because Robbie Mueller had this obsession with like any time a director would point to a beautiful landscape, he would intentionally turn his back on it. Oh, wow. And shoot in the opposite direction. And that's the whole entire thing of like, yes, that looks beautiful, but I've seen it, but it looks like it was in a calendar. Yeah. Look this way, and what do you see? There's a rock. Looks very sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll shoot that. Yeah. And that, that was like his kind of mentality. So I always loved that. Yes. Um, remaining in 1984 and remaining in Texas, <laughs> we go to our next film. Yes. Blood Simple. Yes. Uh, released in 1984, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, but credited only to Joel. Uh, screenplay by Joel and Ethan Cohen and produced by Joel by Ethan Cohen, but really it's it's the two of them. Yeah, you know, they just weren't a. There's like a lot of arbitration around uh, how a duo can be constituted. 
the joke that they had was that because Joel is about three inches taller, he gets to be the director. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a quick synopsis is um, the owner of a seedy small town Texas bar discovers that one of his employers, uh, one of his employees ha- is having an affair with his wife. A chaotic chain of misunderstandings, lies, and mischief ensues after he devises a plot to have them murdered. It stars Frances McDormand in her first starring role. Danny Hedaya, who I absolutely love in this movie. M. Emmett Walsh, who I absolutely adore in this movie. John Getz, who I'm always a fan of. And um, Sam Art Williams as Maurice. He's just somebody who... I love that character, but he never really gets spotlighted when talking about this movie. Um, it's also kind of the beginning of a few key collaborations for the Coens. Uh, Barry Sonnenfeld is the director of photography. Carter Burwell with that unbelievably hypnotic music. Yes. And Skip Levesay as the sound editor. Um, this is just one of my all-time favorite movies ever. Yeah. Like, I can never say and enough. why is it your favorite movie ever? I, I, I don't know. There is something about this. I mean, the Coen brothers are two directors that I adore yeah. unabashedly. I, they are, especially as I've, you know, gone along with movies and got more into movies, I think that at this point they are the only filmmakers that even as much as I love PTA even more than him, that any day of the week I can put on one of their movies and just kind of bliss out to it. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) I, there's something so special about their filmmaking where I can, if I'm in the mood for something funny, I have like five movies I can go to. Yeah. If I'm in the mood for something dark, I have like five movies I can go to. You know, if I want like a little bit of musical mixed in there, (laughs) there's a few movies I can go to. Yeah. And then, you know, if I just want my heart broken, there's a couple of movies yeah. I can go to. There, there's something about them that is so special that I have just a deep emotional connection with. And it kind of, in a way, became cemented with this movie for me. So, like, the you know, the movies of theirs I saw when I was, you know, kind of first was the Coens were just one of those... People were like, I remember like my aunt Susan always talking about like, you would love the Coen brothers, you know? And I was just like, I don't know. You know, like they, they sound cool. That name sounds cool. Yeah. And then, um, Fargo, I didn't grow up with cable. So, you know, like Fargo used to come on PBS (laughs) and I would sit up and watch one of the best double features I ever saw. Very similar to, yeah, PBS. Oh, and. I saw it from PBS. I didn't know it came on PBS. It came on PBS. So years later, it would start, it would get into the P- TBS location. Oh, awesome. Okay. But when I was probably about like 10, 11 years old, it was on PBS. Okay. And PBS on like either, a, I think it was on Saturdays at about 9, 10 o'clock at night would do films. Mm-hmm. And they would do a documentary and they would do a film. And often the films that they did were movies like that was where I saw a movie called A Man and a Woman mm-hmm. in my a great French film. Um, it was where I saw Fargo. And it was also where, similar to your thing about The Dollhouse, mm-hmm. I first saw the movie The Salesman. Oh, awesome. The documentary, the Maisel Brothers documentary, which is another movie that I just love. But it was a similar thing. I came in about 20 maybe 20 minutes into that movie Mm -hmm. and i thought it was a film like i thought it was like a john cassavetes type even though i didn't really know who cassavetes was yet i thought it was a john cassavetes type movie that like it was all improv Mm -hmm. 
again, like I can't articulate this stuff, but this is why I'm thinking that it yeah. is, is that style of film had no clue as a documentary. I thought this was like a movie movie. And I was so invested in it. <laughs> it ended and I was like, what is that movie? And then for about three years, I kept going to PBS <laughs> at like, you know, Saturday night looking for it, hoping to see it again until yeah. I finally found it again. Yeah. And it ended and they did a little afterwards about the Maisels and about that film. And I was like, okay, so this is the salesman. Um, but I saw Fargo on there. And that was one of those things where like, I think my dad came in one night and was like, you got to check out this movie Fargo. And we, <laughs> my dad just loves saying he's fleeing the interview. Like he, <laughs> he loves saying that. So like I saw Fargo bought the DVD on the DVD. There is a Fargo. There is a little making of featurette and that making of featurette mentions from Frances McDormand that she started with them with blood simple. Then one day over the summer, my mom takes me and one of my friends to the mall. She needs to do some stuff. So she drops us off. We went into this little like record slash video store and my buddy got blade runner from there, a movie he's still obsessed with. And I found blood simple and it was like finding like a crown jewel diamond in the rough yeah. kind of thing because just growing up in Atlanta, it wasn't always easy to find certain movies. Yeah. And that was one of those movies. It's like, I went, you know, I couldn't find a blockbuster. I couldn't find it at Hollywood video. I wasn't really old enough quite yet to really get to places like movies we're seeing on my own. So I, I found it, brought it home, watched it. It ended immediately watched it again, ended. And I immediately watched it a third time only movie I've ever done that with mm -hmm. where after the first time I watched it, I watched it three times in a row mm -hmm. in the same night. Mm -hmm. And it just became just a lifelong love of a movie for me. And it was, it's made very accessible to watch now thanks to Criterion because they preserved it and everything, but they also did some digital alterations. So I'm really glad I still have my, my old DVD of it because there are little things that they've changed oh, little wow. things that they've cut out okay. that they've, you know, like gone in and fixed. Like you used to be able to see the track on the ground. This is also though, just a movie that linked me into a lot of other things. It linked me into Sam Raimi and the evil dead because of Joel Cohen's connection with that movie. He was an assistant editor on that movie linked me into a lot of things that I now absolutely love. And it still just maintains. It's like my favorite film of theirs. And one of my all time favorite movies, just period. Okay. But for you, had you seen this one before? Or, like, I mean, I know you'd seen it before we watched it, but, like, before we were watching stuff together, had you seen no. this one before? Okay. Not before we were watching stuff together. Like, you are the one who introduced me to that movie a long time ago. So, for you coming into it, like, how did you feel about, about this one? This is a twisted movie. It is. <laughs> I mean, the great Frances McDormand. Yeah. Beautiful. She was gorgeous in this movie. Beautiful. And it was interesting because you have this like dynamic where in her relationship, she's like cheating on her husband. Mm -hmm. And she has this like guy that actually seems more fit and more. With the John Katz character. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he just seems, they seem more in tune. Mm -hmm. So my thing was mostly to, was like more of the best. Or it's like, how did you end up with. <laughs> Danny Hedaya. Yeah, yeah, I was like, how did you end up with him? Yeah. Because, like, I don't understand. Like, what was it? Like, how, yeah. what is that backstory? That'd be cool to know yeah. that backstory. 
But you can also tell, though, that they kind of live in this very small world or town. Yeah. And maybe that's one of the reasons, you know what I mean? And she um this other man comes into town and now she like they mm-hmm. fit very much together in my opinion they seem more yeah of a connection than her current husband but you so you can also tell that she married like young yeah, yeah. almost like the paris texas yeah kind of like dynamic where yeah. she was younger he was a lot older yeah he could provide for her all those things but then you could tell that later that really didn't matter yeah it's it's a fascinating thing that like you, there, there are a couple of things with that relationship that I absolutely love. The first is that start. I mean, this is the Coen brothers' first thing, and already they knew how to layer a lot of very complex ideas on top of each other. Yeah. One of which being this element of Danny Hedaya's inadequacy as a white man who has a black man working for him, who's <laughs> very attractive. Yeah. And because immediately from the very beginning, he knows that somebody in the bar, and he's immediately convinced it's Maurice. Yeah. Yep. And then when he finds out it's John Getz, it almost burns him even more <laughs> because he was like, I, but like me and you, like we should be on the same team here. Yeah. Like what? Like, no, like it, <laughs> it's one of those like fascinating things that they were already kind of playing with elements of different things. But the other thing that, that I really, really kind of, loved about it and and thought was like so fascinating was the whole entire idea of like using the landscape to their benefit yeah in the sense of not just the physical landscape but also the idea of we're going to talk about a very like you just said a very small town yeah and the way these people are going to kind of collide with one another and the small townness of it yeah is what is going to give you all of the backstory without us ever having to fully explain it. Yeah. This movie is often attributed because of the title to being a sort of, um, almost like a Dashiell Hammett ripoff, which is not true at all. It's pretty erroneous. They did eventually do it with Miller's Crossing, but Mm -hmm. this was actually more of a James M. Cain ripoff who wrote, uh, uh, Postman Always Rings Twice. And if you read his stories, they're all very much like this. They're about a small town, and a younger woman, generally speaking, a younger woman who's married to an older man. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this also crops up in, in Ace in the Hole as well. Yep. You know, a younger woman. It's a great trope in noir. younger woman mm-hmm. who's often married to an older man mm-hmm. who starts an affair mm-hmm. with one of the employees mm-hmm. of said older man. Yeah. Of course, in Ace in the Hole, that's not really the story. But, like, <laughs> that that was, like, the story in, like, you know, Postman Always Rings Twice and a number of other James Cain uh uh stories but like that was one of the things that i thought was so fascinating was that like they took these very basic tropes but they used all of those tropes to their advantage to be able to kind of push you into a story that then they would slowly start to tear apart yeah and that was something that i just absolutely loved i mean yeah because it was definitely tragedy i mean yeah no one kind of escaped except for her yeah you know at the end so it was kind of crazy because she wasn't quite the, quite, no, she wasn't in all the film fatale, <laughs> but it seems like the circumstances around her kind of almost made well, her that way. One of the things that I loved about it, especially like it, it, revisiting it, it's always one of the things that like reoccurs to me every time I revisit it is like how just idiotic <laughs> in a hilarious way, in a very darkly comedic way, how idiotic everybody is. Cause like, 
the problem and you kept you know like calling it out as we were watching it's like part of the problem is that nobody talks to each other yes it was such a lack of communication i'm like you know all you gotta do <laughs> is just talk speak. and then you would find out what's going on and it's just like it's it's almost like People um, do this default thing <laughs> yeah. where they automatically just assume, and that's the truth. Yeah. But yeah. and then they sometimes it was so crazy because you would have the person <laughs> right there in front of you. Yeah. They're right there in your presence. It's not like they're across town or they're somewhere where you can't reach them. That they would be right there in the same room. Yeah. And what's his name? John. John Getz. Yeah, yeah. John Getz character would just assume all these things without just asking her, and she kept even like. There were so many times where they could have escaped that situation yeah. if he just would have answered her honestly yeah. because she kept saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. What are you talking about? You're, you lost me. Yeah. And he's like, but it's okay. It's okay. And he would yeah. just, his mind would be just not there. Yeah. And he couldn't answer simple questions. Yeah. And when you can't answer simple questions, then that's when the confusion comes in. Yeah. So you got to understand situations. There is always going to be confusion when there is complexity to simpleness. Yeah. You, you get what I'm saying? When, yeah. when you bring something so complex to something so simple, yeah. you're going to be confused. There's going to be chaos. Yeah. There's going to be chaos. Absolutely. Especially like one of the things I love is the entire fact that like at the very beginning you have Danny Hedaya look at John Getz and just say so wonderfully, he's like, She's gonna give you that look and just say, "I don't know what you're talking about, Ray." Yeah, so it I didn't played into yes, and because it, he knows her and he yeah. knows her mannerisms. It played into why he felt like this was true. But still, open your mouth. Why are you believing somebody yeah. where she's trying to get away from? So sometimes and, I go still question these. Well, things. then what I love is that all of a sudden later in the movie, he's just finished dumping a body, <laughs> and he's looking at her just like, "I took care of it," you know, just like. Has out like the it. thousand mile stare. Yeah, he's out and, of it. And she just looks at him and goes, like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? I mean, I didn't do anything funny. And this like, oh shit. Look, just comes over his but face. But he still never even got a clear answer. No. He still was like, it's almost like he was too fearful to ask what yeah. he really thought was possible. Because if he asks, then he'll hear the truth. Yeah. And maybe that's something he has to deal with. Yeah. But I'm like, I'd rather just ask because yeah. who wants to live in like uncertainty like that whole situation is so uncertain i was yeah. like who wants to live there and even, uncertainty is not good to live there i don't no. want to live there so and, it was weird that he they never had a full conversation it was bits and pieces that was just like kind of trickled in yeah. but there were no real full conversations and i'm like but if you just would have sat down and had a full conversation with each other yeah this all would have it wouldn't have turned into what it cared yeah <laughs> and even even fascinatingly too like you know, the the whole entire aspect that even by the end, she doesn't even realize that it's not her husband that's trying to kill her that just killed, you know, she... No, it's not You know, husband. like, at the very end, you know, she... she was well, the, in the beginning, it was her husband. At the beginning, it was. So, the, then, the inkling was right. The instinct yeah. of that was right. It's just happened so the man that he hired to kill yeah. end up not killing her and end up killing him and then he came back for you later yeah. and one of the things i love is that you know she at the end when she shoots him and she just goes you know i'm not afraid of you marty and then he starts laughing mm -hmm. he's like well man when i see him i'll let him know and you just see a look on her face like who are you yeah and it was like that whole entire aspect that everybody is on such a different page. It's not even that they're just on a different page. They're each in a different book. Oh, yeah. And so that's the why they, all they had to do was just simply talk. That's yeah. why I was like, this is weird. Yeah. I don't see no like real active communication going on. Yep. So why wouldn't people assume the worst in all these situations? Yeah.
Why wouldn't they assume it? There's Absolutely. no real true communication going on. Everybody's just like, what? I got yeah. it. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. No, no, I've taken care of it. Yeah. That's it. What is that? I don't even, I can't do anything with yeah. that. Yep. <laughs> so of course there's going to be chaos. Like you yeah. can't do anything with that. That's nothing. Yeah. So yeah, but that was a really great story. I found that like very, they are, they're really good storytellers. They are. They are. I love and- a um, serious man. A serious Man is one of my favorites. That's one of my favorites, and, yeah. And Inside Lewin Davis as well. And, yes, and, mine is and, Macbeth. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's interesting because now we're going to get to see. So Ethan released a documentary this year with his wife, Trisha Cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Macbeth was just Joel and Fran McDormand. Mm-hmm. And um, now Ethan and Trisha Cook, his wife, are also doing their own film off to the side, their own feature film. Oh, that's awesome. And some. We should begin that this coming year. Mm-hmm. Very excited about that. That'll be one of the things we cover on our uh, next show, uh, talking about movies that came out this year and movies that are coming out uh, like coming that out. we're looking forward to. Okay. But um, yeah, so that's Blood Simple. So your next one? My next one is a movie called Dreamland. Staying in the Desert. I yeah, it's a, it's, it's, <laughs> it has this desert... I mean, if you really think I mean, about it, the last three movies now have yes, all been in the desert because it's very symbolic of a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, it's very symbolic. It's very symbolic. Um, but it's called Dreamland. Yep. But there's so many. If you look this up, yeah, <laughs> there's so many movies. Yeah. With the title Dreamland. Yeah. That you have to pick out this one. This one is a 2006. Yeah. It was released in December of 2006. Um, it was directed by Jason. I don't know how to say. It pronounce his like um last name matt matt zor matt masnor yeah i, I think jason masnor I, I think it's masnor yeah masnor yeah okay and then um it was written by tom willett uh-huh. and the actors in it is agnes bruckner kelly garner justin long john mm-hmm. corbett yeah. gina gershon um chris mulkey Lucas Reigns and Brian Klugman. Yeah. So, and this movie was pretty interesting. This had a big effect on, on me during my teen years. I actually saw it not too long after it came out. I, I was about to add, that was actually going to be the number one thing I was going to ask. Yeah. I never even heard about this movie until you mentioned it to me. <laughs> yes. And then you showed it to me. Because it's one of, to me, this is one of the true gems that's, I it was like, gets how the buried. hell did you find this one? Yes, like, because you know what? I can see. You can just sometimes see beauty in things, even yeah. when other people don't think it's a good film or yeah. it, it was written well. I see gems in it because of the way it called to me. Yeah. So this movie was like it had a very, 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 very limited like um, theatrical release. Yeah. Because I remember I used to see the previews in, in a trailer when I would go to the movie. So yeah. that's the weird thing. Yeah. But I never saw it in theater. But maybe a couple of years later, uh-huh. or around the time it came out, I ended up seeing it. Yeah. And I remember, because I was like, oh, that's the movie I used to see on the trailer when I went to this movie and this yeah. movie. And then one day I found it in like Movie Stop or something yeah. and bought the movie. Um, but it is a movie about a young woman who is very, she's a very talented uh, writer, specifically poetry. Mm-hmm. And part of the narrative of this film is she has a lot of her poetry recited through the narrative of of the film. So there would be things happening and then her voice over would come in and she would actually recite one of her poems. 
Um, and this really stuck out to me because I am very much a person that still to this day loves poetry. Mm -hmm. I can't get enough of it. And I write a lot of it myself. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that's one of my languages of how I truly express myself because I'm a person that oftentimes can be very awkward and quirky a little bit. And I can be kind of quiet and shy. And because of that, I use a lot of my words to kind of, that I write down. Not yeah. words that I speak, but words that I write down to kind of express myself. <laughs> so that was one of my ways of doing it. And then to this day, that's just still one of the ways that I can really like go into my own head and try to kind of pick apart the things that I'm really feeling sometimes because yeah. we can only feel things on the surface level sometimes. And I sometimes I like to go deeper. I'm like, yeah. what does this mean for me? Yeah. So my way of expressing that and just kind of recognizing my own thoughts or deciphering it is to just write it down on paper. Yeah. And usually that's in poetry form. And that's one of the things that drew me to this film because this this very talented young woman also like take care of her dad. Her dad was agoraphobic. Yeah. And he was stuck in the trailer because they lived in this desert town called yep. Dreamland. And they lived in this trailer park area right outside of like big cities and stuff mm -hmm. like that. They weren't that far. That's what's so crazy. You know how something can be yeah, just like an armless away? Yeah, because I think like in the story like they kind of mentioned at one point they're not too far off from vegas no they weren't they weren't too far off from yeah. vegas like and it was so crazy because they're right outside of it mm -hmm. and they're and it's like it's within an arm length and yet like they look like they're in a world all on its own yeah and this one this young woman is taking care of her father like she graduated high school and now she's trying to decide if she wants to go to college because she's getting all these college acceptance letters yeah. like a, a whole bunch of them that's coming through and she thinks because her father needs her she starts actually hiding the letters like she hides them and she puts them under her bed in a box yep and she kind of stows them away almost like her little secret mm -hmm. and uh, she hides away a lot from the world and you can tell, but she's a very like just beautifully talented woman. And then you can tell too, her character take spends a lot of the time um, taking care of other people. So because her dad become agoraphobic when her mo mother died, he yep. couldn't leave the trailer park. Yeah. So whenever he does that, he kind of gets these like panic attacks and anxiety and all these things. So that was pretty interesting. And her name is Audrey in the film, um, Agnes Bruckner. Yeah. And John Corbett is her father. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny. And her best friend is Kelly Gardner, mm -hmm. whose name is Callista in the movie. Yeah. Um, but she changes it because it wasn't Callista at first. No. Yeah. She's like, it starts in the beginning. It starts with a scene. Yeah. yeah. She says her name is something, but she wants then, to change it to Callista. Yeah. She's like, call me Callista, Callista now. Yeah. Now. So it's so funny. And um, and she meets uh, Justin Long. He comes into Dreamland. Yeah. But the cool thing I found was he's very... He's like Gina Gershon's kid. Yeah, he's yeah. Gina Gershon's kid. And the, the cool part I found that was very symbolic about that part is think about his journey. When Justin Long comes into Dreamland, Dreamland was just a stop on the way for him. Yeah. While a lot of people made it their, like, life mm -hmm. to stay there. Yeah. And it was so sad, too. The melancholy of this story was Callista, mm -hmm. Kelly Garner's character, is dealing with multisclerosis. Yeah, yeah. 
So she's dealing with MS. And she's like 17. Yeah, she's, she's 17. MS. She's yeah. young. She's really young. Yeah. And she was actually sent to Dreamland mm -hmm. because her aunt had like a really great medical plan from the manufacturer company that she worked at. And she because she had such a great medical plan, her parents sent her to her aunt in Dreamland to the desert yep. to get taken care of because yeah. of the medical plan. And she finds herself being stuck in Dreamland. She wants to be Miss America, but finds herself stuck in Dreamland. Yeah. And if you think about how that just being even said, she's stuck in Dreamland. Like yeah. that is like to even say those words, it's like very like, ah, yeah. oh, symbolic for me. <laughs> and here's Agnes choosing to stay there. Yeah. There are people that can't leave. That's that's their life, but she's choosing to stay in Dreamland. Yeah. Because she she honestly from her own fear of kind of tackling the world. Yeah. And also because she thinks her family needs her because her dad is agoraphobic and she's just like, My dad needs me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we use our family's things as an excuse to not kind of grow ourselves. And her situation I could relate to so much because in my early 20s, I, I was taking care of my sick father a lot. Um, so sometimes you kind of use that as the way to kind of be like, let me stay put because people need me. But sometimes you, sometimes there's still something else that you need to do for yourself as yeah, well. Absolutely. Um, and it, it just, that was the connection. Like everything about this movie really connected with me. I was living in dreamland to a degree. No, I'm, I'm not from the desert, of course. I'm from <laughs> Atlanta, Georgia, which is a yeah. ever-growing yeah. city you know really yeah. big city but um the world that i grew up in the environment mm -hmm. i grew in felt very desert like and small yeah. because you don't think you can have the dreams you have growing mm -hmm. up you know in in like very weird places and growing yeah. up in the ghetto growing up in the hood growing up yeah. in certain places you don't think that those things are privileged to you like you're not privileged to those things they're yeah. not a luxury for you to dream that you can be a filmmaker yeah. or a writer or this so yeah. i used to try to be very practical with what i wanted to to do like yeah. i went from be, wanting to be in um politics and i used to like see all these little different letters that used to come in the mail for me for political science and then i was like no i want to be you know, a psychologist. And I was like, no, I want to be a lawyer. No, I want to be this. And then finally I saw them and I was like, no, but I'm a writer. Because I had been writing for so long. Like, yeah. even when I was like, I didn't always understand, like, poetry. When mm -hmm. I was a little kid, like, I would write poetry. And I would write these short stories in, like, little notebooks. And I would always have my mom buy me these, like, blank notebooks and composition books. And you know the composition books that you usually used to have on your list of items and supplies for school? yeah. yeah. I never wrote any school stuff in those books. Yeah. I would take like them. Like the ones I still use. Yes. I would take them and just write short yeah. stories and poetry in them. I never used them for class. Yeah. I was never, 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 ever used them for class. Yeah. So, so that was what was so funny. And I just used to collect them. Mm -hmm. And so this story just really hits home for me because I was stuck in my own kind of dreamland yeah. for a very long time. Um, and sometimes still is, you know, yeah. you got to come out of it a little bit. <laughs> sometimes still is. Um, <laughs> but this movie hit home because it just had a lot of the same things that were going on with me in my life and what was going on with me internally was what was, was being displayed on the screen for me. I was yeah. just like, no, this is not what, like, it yeah. just felt like, part of something I could really relate to because yeah. I, I felt like I was living that life. Yeah. Like the scenery was different, 
but the end results and the situations that was happening were the same. And that's kind of the best part about the one of the other great things about films, right? Is that like you can, it, it's a way, it's the closest we get to actually dreaming and, yeah. and being able to show other people our dreams. Yep. And you know whether they're dreams like something fantastical, like you know a Star Wars or a superhero deal, yeah, or something that is just true to life that you know you you you've lived and maybe you're experiencing to some degree. Yeah. And you can end up seeing through those things like mirrors of your own life that with people that look totally different, but they're going through the same thing. Yes. These things should be things that are helping connect us. And yet we are how we are. Yeah. That's a different story. (laughs) But yeah, this is a, this is one of those movies that like, I, I mean, I definitely do not have the same emotional connection with it that you do. Um, but it was a movie that you showed me that I, I ended up really, really liking. This is not the kind of movie that would ever be on my radar no. as evidenced by all of the films that I've just picked, which are overly masculine, <laughs> uh, often dealing with some form of horrid murder yeah. and, you know, like just not, not in any way, shape or form, uh, movies like the films that you've picked, which I love. And uh, yeah, they're very eccentric. Like they have no... They don't have a connection with each other, the five true gems that I pick, as far as the like the actual like things going on in the movie, or should I say like the plot or what it seem, seems to be. Yeah, yeah. But like for some reason they can pinpoint certain things. Like family, yeah. it can pinpoint like these women coming of age stories of yeah. what they're trying to be, even to the degree of like John Cassavetes and yeah. um, Vin Vendors when he's doing Vin Vendors when he's doing Paris Texas and the Father and the Son, I can still even relate to those simple things yeah. because of the difficult relationships I've had yeah. in my life with those types of things. So because of that, you know, like I can relate to it all. So yeah. I think that was the connection with all these stories, even though they feel very different in the way yeah. that they're told. Yeah, for sure, and like. I think the thing is, is, you know, it's like, this is one of those movies that for me, this would normally never be on my radar. It would be the kind of movie that if we still had video stores, I would just not even notice the cover sitting there. (laughs) Um, I would, my eyes would just see that cover and just keep going. (laughs) But um, watching with you, I was, you know, really blown away with it the first time I saw it. In particular, the, the, the entire movie for me is all about John Corbett's performance. I, yeah. I really adore what he did in that movie. Like if we were giving out awards, you know, through, for all the films that we picked, I mean, he would be up there for supporting actor for me as, I mean, of all the movies that we're looking at, he, he is a standout performance. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, just even when we were rewatching it for this and just watching how he, he did his thing in this movie. I mean, it was unbelievable. I, I you know, it's like, I think like we even mentioned, we were talking uh, when we were watching a movie that, I think like everybody else, I knew John Corbett from Sex and the City. Yes. So like, <laughs> I really did not yeah. in my head think like, oh, all right, we got John Corbett in the movie. Yeah. I was just, it was just kind of like, okay, that that's interesting casting. Yeah. And then we start watching it and, you know, from the very first time he shows to me, which was maybe about what, like nine Eight, nine years ago? Yeah. And very early because, I i mean, this came out two years after I graduated. Yeah. And I say about a year or two later, like, I own 
yeah. the DVD because I, I used to see the trailers and I really wanted to, it was interesting to me because it reminded me of a lot yeah. of my life. And yeah. I think this was one of the first, when we first started hanging out, I think this is one of the first movies you showed yeah. me yeah. was this one. And, and I, I was, I was pleasantly surprised by it. I thought it was, it was quite incredible. Yeah. And, um, Still love it. Yeah. You know, still absolutely love it. And I think it's it's fantastic. Yes. Um, so, so what is your next one? So wrapping this up finally. Yes. We're, we're <laughs> at the end. We are at we're the at end. the end. Uh, this is the movie I've been the most excited to talk about. It is 1941's Swamp Water, directed by Jean Renoir. Um, uh, it's based on a novel by uh, Verna Bell. And... Uh, the script was by uh, Dudley Nichols. The synopsis is attempting to find his dog in a vast Georgia swamp. Ben Reagan stumbles upon a wanton murderer, Tom Kiefer, who convinces Ben that his, he was framed for the murder by the real killers. Stars Dana Andrews, Walter Brennan, Walter Houston, Ann Baxter, Virginia Gilmore, and she plays the snotty girlfriend that you, you, neither of us could stand. Yes. Uh, Mary Howard as, as Hannah. And um, John Carradine as Jesse Wick, the guy who ends up giving everybody up. And, of course, that is there, – there are, uh, fascinatingly, two fathers of, of um, kind of uh, well-known, you know, uh, uh, kind of Hollywood families. Yeah. And, you know, with Walter Houston, of course, being John Houston's mm-hmm. father, Angelica Houston's grandfather, and then John Carradine being the father of David and uh, um, uh, John Carradine. Yes. And I mean, I'm trying to my brain is starting to die this late in. <laughs> it's okay. This is our last one. David and Keith, Keith Carradine. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but I absolutely love this movie. This movie came out of, um, uh, I had never seen this movie until around the Thanksgiving holiday this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of this whole entire thing were true gems. And how many times have you said you've seen it? I have it now just... seen it like, uh, like five times. I think. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, crazy. Like when me and you watched it was, I think like the fourth or fifth time. Yes. And, um, I, I love this movie from yeah. the moment that I saw it. So the way I found this and part of the whole entire true gems thing came out of us talking about how can we spotlight movies yeah. that we saw maybe this year but can't really put into a top 10 because or they're any category older. when you really think about it. Yeah. They're kind of in their own little weird category categories. So and I don't know. Like for me, this entire episode was an excuse to spotlight this one yeah. film. Like that was just for me personally. <laughs> um, I found this movie recently because deliverance was on Netflix and it got me interested in other movies that took place in the state of Georgia or were filmed in the state of Georgia that are not movies now being made here because of tax credits. Okay. Okay. You know, like I'm not thinking about movies that are movies shot on an Atlanta soundstage. I'm thinking about kind of films that are made here, like Sharky's machine, like deliverance, like swamp water. And the whole reason this started was because in the, so I put on deliverance on Netflix one night because I hadn't seen it in years. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, the entire opening, there was this whole bit where, you know, Burt Reynolds is talking about how industry is kind of raping, you know, the land in in Georgia and how, you know, it's all starting to go away. And it was this fascinating thing where as a kid seeing Deliverance, never really thought about all those lines. 
now as an adult seeing so many things in Georgia disappear and seeing animals running around in our neighborhoods that mm -hmm. we did not used to see before and seeing so many things getting displaced as we're just building up and building up yeah. and building up that line really that whole little bit in the beginning really resonated with me and I suddenly got on this track of like I'm going to write, write an academic book about movies uh, in Georgia and <laughs> I like sort of like making a list of movies that were made here pre all of this crap that's happening now. Yeah. And as Swamp Water was the first one and there was this movie I'd never even heard of. I was sitting there, I was like, what the hell is this? John, John Renoir shot a movie here in 1940, 1941, I guess roughly is when it was shot. I'm not sure if it was released the same year or shot. Um, and it was shot in Waycross in the Okefenokee Swamp. <laughs> That's funny. And I was in there like, what the, you know, like, you I know, never, everybody takes a field trip there. If you're, if you I, are from Atlanta, yes, I went to Waycross as a kid yeah, to the Okefenokee. <laughs> everybody takes a trip to the Okefenokee. <laughs> and it was like, well, so anyway, I found that. I read, so anyway, about like six hours after I'd had this whole entire like supercharger, I was going to write like the ultimate book about Georgia film. That feeling was gone. I was like, yeah, no, that's way too much work. I'm never going to do that. I am too lazy of a human being to ever do that amount of research and actually write a yes. good academic book. Okay. The only Maybe movie... Maybe one day that might be like a bucket list project. It, it, it might turn into one. It sounds like way too much work. <laughs> so, uh, what it resulted in, though, was I suddenly had a list of movies that maybe I could watch as I was going to sleep. And... Swamp Water was one of those movies. And so it's on YouTube. That's how we watch it also. Mm -hmm. It's on YouTube in great quality. Yes, it is. I was kind surprised. Of, <laughs> kind of a hard movie to find uh, in a good form on video. So was very happy to find it on YouTube and be able to watch it. Highly recommend everybody watch this movie. Uh, but um, I was about 15 minutes into it and I was so sunk into this movie <laughs> that I was like, what is this? Literally. like <laughs> Literally. I was stuck in the Okie Finoki quicksand <laughs> of this film. And uh, it, it resulted in me watching it um, a number of times, like a, until we eventually watched it together. Mm -hmm. And I will probably see it a number more times in my yeah. life. Cause I, I just absolutely adore this movie right yeah. now. Um, you were kind of coming into this one with like me just ranting about swamp water yeah so how did you feel once you finally got to see it it was great yeah i think this one is a true gem like seriously <laughs> like it was so great i was like what like i didn't even know like things like that even existed like anyone yeah. was doing a film in Georgia about the Okefenokee and they had this really magnificent story around it and I was just like that's the way to highlight something if anything yeah which is really cool because I was like what like yeah this was sitting around the Okefenokee River but the story is like so dynamic that yeah. surrounds it because you go into this story where this young man his father Thursday yep tells him not played by Danny yep, yep tells him not to like go like rambling around in the Okefenokee River. Don't go. He was like, just don't go. Don't go rumbling around in there because people that go in there kind of get lost or can't come out and you can't find your way. And 
he was like, I don't want you lost in there. And he was like, but I got to find my dog. Because at that point, like, that mattered. That dog mattered to this young yep. man so much. So he was like, no, I have to go in there. Like, I need to find my dog. Like, it went off that way, so I need to go find it. Yeah. So he started on this long journey to go to the Okefenokee and comes across a man, a fugitive. Yeah, Walter Brennan. Yeah, who's being accused of, like, killing someone. Yeah. That, and there's more to that story. You find out, like, it didn't happen. Like, he yeah. was being wrongfully accused. Yep. But at the time, you don't know that. So then you find out that he had been hiding in the Okefenokee for how many years? It was yeah. like, what he it said? Was, it was like at the five, end, like, yeah, he said, like, like, five years, years yeah. or something. I was and, like, what? And one of the things I thought was so phenomenal was a couple of things. You know, one, one is that, you know, he, uh, they're also pinning the murders of a couple of guys that went looking for him. Yeah, on him, on him as well. And then he was like, no, they were snake bit, you know, by cottonmouths. Yep. And then, of course, he himself gets bit by a cottonmouth. And he admits that he had already been bitten a couple more times. And it you, just didn't kill him. You find out that he has an immunity to their venom. <laughs> yeah, that's so and cool. It, it was like this really <laughs> awesome kind of little bit. Um, I also loved, uh, just kind of the, relationship the the relationship between the two women that dana mm-hmm. andrews has now there are a lot of people who don't necessarily love dana andrews i am not really in that camp i really like him as an actor mm-hmm. um there's something about him that is like he is so kind of like odd and naive in his performances that i always love them because they always feel kind of like they almost remind me a lot of kind of like how i feel about clooney mm-hmm that there's something very odd about all of Clooney's performances, but they're also very magnetic to me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I feel about Dana Andrews. There's something very kind of odd, slightly off about his performances in the sense that he's always very wide-eyed. Mm-hmm. He's always very kind of like, you know, like he, he, everything he says is almost kind of like monotone. Yeah. But there's so much emotion behind yeah, that that kind of monotone. It's kind funny because the part has. I found interesting about that part of his character mm. was the fact that how he was supposed to be, he was supposed to keep everything a secret. Yeah, like him going and but finding he's the so highs, yeah, that and he the just skins and all, about it. and he just keeps. It's almost like, oops, yeah. but this is this happened. Oops, yeah, oops. It was so childlike. It was like he could not keep yeah. his mouth closed for anything. It was and, so funny, which then led to people. Who wanted no, nothing the good come out of anything? No. You know how you you could talk and speak out loud to so yeah. many people, and there are just some people who sees more in it and they wish to do harm. Yeah, and that's what I saw with him telling he it was such an innocence there, but everybody around him who would hear him slip up, they intended to do harm. So yeah. it was just really it was like an unlucky kind of guy too. Yeah. He was very kind of unlucky. Lucky yeah. but unlucky. Yeah. Like it was, and, it was weird. and the whole entire idea of him, you know, slowly getting to that point where he's gonna be the one that that finally kind of breaks the case yeah. to some degree or another. Yeah. Um I love that whole entire build up, especially like there's that moment, you know, they're, they're early in the movie, him and because he goes looking for trouble in the Oki Finoki, yeah. Walter Houston as his dad. Uh stops speaking to him of course and everything and all that and so and then later on he's 
these guys are like, you know, we know you know where Tom Kiefer is, and they start trying to drown him. Yeah, and they're like, the killer! But then they tried yeah. to kill a man and for, to find the killer. Does that make sense? There's a beautiful <laughs> moment where Walter Houston walks up, mm-hmm. and he's like, what's going on down there? And he sees what's happening, and he starts walking down, and it's like, the way they shoot it, the gravitas of him as an actor walking yeah. down there, it just gives me goosebumps just even yeah, thinking about it. Yeah, you see the level and, of respect he had in that town. Yeah, and it was like, you saw, you know, um, uh, Virginia Gilmore, she was like so snotty and irritating yeah. in that movie. And <laughs> you see her like running back inside like a, you know, little child who's yeah. just been a little ass. Yeah. And he's like walking down and you just see like the seas part for him yeah. as he walks down there and saves his son yeah from getting drowned it was just so phenomenal just the the stuff that and even you know like um the scene where they get into the fight i remember calling the shot out when we were watching it the scene when uh he's fighting virginia gilmore's boyfriend yes at the dance Mm -hmm. you know and he um uh takes mary howard with him to the the uh dance instead who is of course Walter Brennan's character, Tom Kiefer, it's his daughter. Yes. And she's looked at kind of as like a crazy cat lady, basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, but she's really beautiful. Yeah. And really amazing. And mm-hmm. like, you know, a perfect match for, for, um, Dana Andrews' character. And there's that shot of her pushing through the crowd. Yeah. While they're getting to that fight. It was just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. The filmmaking in this movie is just so unbelievable. It's, it's hard to believe that this was, 1941 you know that when you're watching just how amazing and of course everything Jean Renoir did was beautiful in its construction but there was something about this one Mm -hmm. that was very 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 special Mm -hmm. that I absolutely loved so I was really glad that we were able to spotlight this one and I I finally have somebody that watched it with me yeah I've recommended it to a few other people and they're just like yeah 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 okay watch it. <laughs> yeah i it, even i sent it to my dad like the youtube link to my dad and mm-hmm. he was like yeah i haven't watched that because the title is kind of bad yeah, yeah you know it's kind of a bad title yeah. so it's sort of like one of those things where most people i think see us and they're just like i'm not gonna watch this stupid movie yeah. you know but then you watch it and you're just like yes and it has so much depth oh, to it like it, yeah i'm like no you should you should see it actually really good <laughs> yeah so now we're wrapping up with our final film yes the final one is for me is crooklyn spike lee's it's spike movie. lee's yeah. movie crooklyn um it came it was released in uh, may of 1994 yep um of course directed by spike lee but also um the story and co-written was by uh spike lee his brother and his sister actually yeah. Um, and you can tell that, you know, a few of these moments like really kind of stood out because they kind of mirrored his life a little bit, which is funny because these were one of the closest stories that came to my kind of childhood as well. So it was so, I think that's what I was drawn to was how this kind of related to my childhood. Like, you know how, like it was kind of the semi kind of big family because it was like four or five of them. Yeah. And then the mother and father, and that's, that was exactly my family's yeah. like dynamic. Um, and it stood out to me very much because here is this strong, beautiful black woman who is played by Alfre Woodward. She was great, so great, 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 great. Alfre Woodward. So yes, yeah. she, she, Al, Alfre Woodward. It's like, 
I've seen her in so many things. She yeah. she's even the mother in um uh what is it? Love in basketball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um she plays in so many different things that which is exciting. We're gonna get to talk about Love and Basketball's director. Yeah. And, and yeah. On our next episode. Yeah. So that is what's amazing. Um, the father is played by Delroy Lindo. Uh, Spike Lee is in it. Yes. As well. He's <laughs> one of like the junkies that's just huffing. Huffing glue. He's huffing or, glue. Or paint. paint. Yeah. yeah. On the street, like. I think it was glue. Yeah. At, at one point, like, I love glue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then this really beautiful young woman yes. named Zelda Harris. Yes. She is who we see the story through her eyes. Like yes. she is our conduit into yes. this story. Um, and then she has like three or four other brothers that is also in this, that um, kind of tracks it. She's the only girl yeah. of the family. So it's so funny that with her being the only girl, like she's surrounded by her brothers. Like, yeah always kind of having their way yeah. in the house. And even though I'm not the only girl, I have a sister. Um, I'm not the only girl, but I do have three brothers. Yeah. And a lot of times they won a lot of things, like especially when we would do family votes. Yeah. They won because it was just more boys than it was girls. Yeah. So a lot of times when we would do our like family vote on what we wanted to do or where we wanted to go and what we wanted to see, what we wanted to eat, they won a lot because they actually, it was so funny because they thought alike a lot. So it's like they won because they were the majority. So that was funny in that one. So that's what I seen a lot with this film as well. And I also to see this young woman dealing just through her trips and her life and how she was growing up kind of on the stoop, kind of in that neighborhood. And I've done so many things like this, like literally like how she went to the store and put stuff under her clothes yep. and got caught and how um, her mom would tell her to go to the store and spend the food stamps. And she was like, I don't want to go. I'm embarrassed. Like there were so many points in my life that was very, very similar that I was like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like, He's telling my story. And so then there was a lot of things going on as well where her mother ended up sick. And like I could relate to that a lot too because that happened to me when I was like 16, going mm -hmm. into 17. My mother unfortunately passed away. So all those things were such a kind of mirroring image of yeah. my life. But at the time, I didn't always know that because... When I saw that movie, my mom was very much alive and well and yeah. okay. And and I was like, I'm close to this young woman's age. Mm -hmm. So I think we we're pretty much the same age. So yeah. that tells you that when this came out, we were like the same age. And we were going through a lot of the same things. So it was just so like, it was such a big part of my life to see this really strong young woman yeah. being like the main character of this story. Yeah. And she was really great. Like, yeah. she really brought it. Like, she was really great. And I've seen her in other things as well. Mm -hmm. She played in this movie called Clover. Yeah. I could have sworn it was with, um, uh, what's his name? Macy. But maybe yeah. I'm... William H. Macy. Yeah, William H. Macy. And she also played in one of my favorite books that I grew up with, The Babysitter's Club. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. that was one of my favorite, like, preteen books growing yeah. up. And she actually, the only, the one and only movie that was ever made from that book, she she plays in. Mm. So, like, I thought that was really pretty cool. And, um, but I just grew up around 
these stories that really I can really relate to and was really gave me a really high sense mm-hmm. of like my life. Yeah. And I think it broadened that. It was just like, ooh, you can make movies like this? Like, that's one of the things I loved about Spike Lee movies is that I was like, oh, I can make a movie like this just telling my life. I can make, <laughs> I can write a story like this. I can make yeah. a movie like this. Um, but it was so funny because there were certain parts in the film as well. It's like when she went to her aunt's house and she had, um, she was with her cousin and her uncle and that dog. Mm-hmm. And I, you know what? The funny thing is, it was a similar thing for me with my family stuff. It's not, it wasn't as, it wasn't anything like where the woman was adopted, like the auntie had adopted, you know, the girl. And like all my aunties are my aunts. But like, it was funny because for a while, when I was really little, I lost like my parents and us, we lost touch with my mom's side of the family. When I was really, really little, I probably was about eight years old at this time. And we lost touch with my mom's side of the family for a while. And then by the time I was like, I think when I was like, no, I think it was actually when I was about two or three, Mm -hmm. we moved to Atlanta. And that's when we kind of lost touch with my mom's family. And I say by the time I was like eight, they came back into my life. And all of a sudden, these two women, I'm at school one day, right? I think I was in a second or third grade. So this is really weird. And I walk out of class and literally... My mom checks me out and of school and she's like, no, no, like, come with me. Like, your aunties are here. And I'm like, huh? Because <laughs> I didn't remember them because I hadn't yeah. seen them since I was like three or four. And here I was like eight years old at the time. So I was like, huh? My aunties? I was like, she was like, yeah, my sisters, Brittany, my sisters. Do you remember your aunties, my sisters? And I was like, uh. And I was trying to remember them mentally, but it just wasn't there. So, and I think I remember them from pictures. But I didn't remember them like at that present moment. I could not picture them in my head. And so then we were walking down the hall and we got to the front of the school building where the office is and where you go to outside to the front where the school buses were. And I stopped because these two women come up to me and they're like, hi. And they just (laughs) bend down in my face and I'm like, ah. It was just like so like, Yeah. yeah, it was so like, boom, right in your face because like two women that I couldn't remember just came out of nowhere just like, hi, do you remember me? I'm your aunt. And they were just like, and I'm like, uh, 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 mom, mom, who, yeah, yeah. yeah." Like it was just so weird. But the thing about it is that I saw all, like, we still had all the pictures from when I was little. They were in my life. Yeah. And then when they came back into my life, I started remembering some of the stuff that I remember when I was younger, that I, when I used to visit their house, it started coming back to me. But at the moment, in the moment it was happening, I could not remember them. Yeah. And all I kept thinking was, Mom, I want to go home. Kind of yeah. how she was when she was like, Mom, don't leave me. Yeah. And she started chasing the car yeah. as it was pulling out the driveway. Yeah. Like, it reminded me. I was going through something very similar. That's why I said it was so weird. Yeah. And to then to be back in touch with, like, my cousins mm-hmm. and all those people that I, I didn't remember right away. Mm-hmm. It took me a while for my brain to go, yep, remember? Like, it had to fire a spark and go, yep, remember, remember? <laughs> so it was so weird. But... This very closely related to my life, and I found that very interesting. And it was a beautifully told story. Yeah, it really is. I think, you know, I mean, like, I was actually having this conversation, like, right around the Christmas holiday with somebody where um, a friend of mine mentioned that he 
uh, had recently got Malcolm X the, from the Criterion sale. And um, I like Malcolm X. I've never been like somebody, though, who champions that as, like, his greatest work. Because mm-hmm. I don't really agree with that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that um, Spike Lee's career, by and large, moved toward him getting to the place where he can make Crooklyn. Yeah. That is really kind of what I believe. And I, I do think that he has made two films that are truly through and through brilliant works of both a storyteller and an architect Mm -hmm. of a cinematic experience. And I think those are Crooklyn and the 25th hour. Mm -hmm. I think those are his by and largely two greatest achievements as a filmmaker. And it's odd because those are two movies that nobody really talks about Mm -hmm. with him. Um, There's like a, a thing that, uh, Alexander Payne used to say that he would say your first movie is I can't believe I'm getting to make a film your second movie is I can't believe I'm getting paid to make a film <laughs> and your third movie is okay everybody stand back I'm about to make a film Yeah, that is 100% true Spike Lee mm-hmm. I don't think that there is another filmmaker that exists that you can point to quite in the same way that that is as true about Yeah, She's Gotta Have It is a movie in which you can see a filmmaker saying, I cannot believe I'm getting the chance to make my own film. School Days is 100% a guy saying, I can't believe that we're all getting paid to make this film. Do the Right Thing is a director standing up and saying, everybody stand back, I'm about to make make a film. film. And it's (laughs) unbelievable. Then he does Mo Better Blues Mm -hmm. and Jungle Fever, Mm -hmm. which are both necessary films from a filmmaking standpoint for him to get to Malcolm X. Yeah. By the time he gets to Malcolm X, you're seeing this guy is a tremendous craftsman. Yeah. He's a tremendous architect of cinema. Yeah. And he can bring out brilliant, brilliant performances. But then he does Crooklyn after Malcolm X. And Crooklyn to me is when he stops worrying about having to prove himself Mm -hmm. and simply comes into something saying, I can now make a film. Yeah. And... This movie is so brilliant and so beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. From, you know, I mean, like as we were watching it, from the, you know, even the moment when, um, you know, Hey Joe starts playing, he does this little Scorsese yeah. montage in slow motion. And, you know, the the fact that he would suddenly just change the aspect ratio. Yeah. You know, not even change the necessarily just the aspect ratio, but he also, you know, he suddenly starts shooting anamorphic. Yeah. And that stretches was that the where she goes her when she house. goes to her aunt's house. Yeah. And it creates the weirdest effect where your eyes attune to it after the first few minutes. Yeah. And then when she goes back to Brooklyn. Yeah. And it leaves that anamorphic stretch. Yeah. Your eye almost can't register her. Yeah. When she's in the car going back home. Mm-hmm. My eyes almost didn't register her as her it creates this tremendous effect of what happens when somebody is gone for a couple of months yeah and, and then, then it, you it see felt them like again. she grew up at that point oh yeah her name it, was troy in the film Zelda yes. harris but it felt like it felt like she grew up in that yeah. little span of time like that's what i saw i saw this little girl that like grew up just a little bit more yeah like by the time she had came home and she was like i wanted to come home like yeah. i want to go home and her uncle was like yes then let's Let's send her home like she wants to go home. Yeah. 
And her cousin was like, well, if she leaves, I'm going with her. Yeah. So her cousin was funny too, but she taught her a lot. And she kind of, they kind of like, she was like ran after her. And she was, and I remember those days of being like that with my older cousin. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just like, that's cool. <laughs> it's also a movie that has some of the best performances of any of his films. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Alfred Woodard. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned Delroy Lindo. Mm-hmm. I also think it's incredible that if you watch his recent movie, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, the Five Bloods. Oh, yeah. If you watch that movie, Delroy Lindo was in that. It mm-hmm. looks like he just wrapped this movie. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't age. <laughs> like, he, he has not aged like at all. <laughs> and it, it's phenomenal when you see him in that movie oh, and you're man. like, did he did he shoot all of his scenes yeah. right after Brooklyn? <laughs> And we're just now seeing the footage. Yeah. Like <laughs> he does not age. He has not aged yeah. a bit, and it's incredible. <laughs> I'm sure if you talked to him, he'd be like, "Well, my knees have." But yeah. like, yeah. when you look at this guy, he looks the exact same. same. It is yeah. phenomenal. Even um, Bakeem Woodbine showing up yes. in this movie for a split second. When I saw him too, I was like, "He don't age either." No, he and you, you see him in there, and he's just in the background yeah. for a split second. Because he was on the stairs. He's on the, on the stoop. Yeah. And you just see him kind of in the background. You're. You immediately look at him. You're like, "There's Bokeem." Yeah, you know. But it's like he—he's another guy. He just hasn't aged, and yeah. it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Even to a degree, Spike Lee looks the exact yeah, same. Yeah, he does. You know, yeah. like Spike I, Lee does. Yeah, look it's uh, he was definitely thinner when yeah. he did this movie, but that's yeah. about it. And that was about it's it. not like he's like a big guy by any means, but no. he—you know—you can tell he his wife feeds him very well. <laughs> <laughs> but um. You know, it was, uh, this is like a, uh, one of those movies that it, it's fascinating to me because, you know, he spent the bulk of his career, I think, kind of moving away from the idea of being Scorsese, despite the fact that you see that influence yeah. imprinted on every film that he's ever made. Yeah. You know, all the way down to, if you go back and look at the production history of Do the Right Thing, Sal was supposed to be played by De Niro. Yeah. Before it was Danny Aiello. Mm. And then he was like, but then it's a De Niro movie because I'm not Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. And made the right call of casting Danny Aiello in place of De Niro. Mm-hmm. It took him, you know, what was it, like six films, seven films, to get to that point where he could do his mean streets, yeah. where he wasn't nervous about that. You could tell he was confident enough in himself to be able to sit down and just say i'm just gonna make a movie about me now yeah. i'm gonna stop worrying about mm-hmm. you know uh, making a, a you know trying to fit me inside of something broader yeah you know we're not talking about and instead i'll bring you into my world <laughs> yeah and so like we're just gonna very very simply just talk about me and my siblings yep and my parents yeah and that's it of course his dad really was a musician, mm-hmm. just like Delroy Lindo is in the, the yeah. story, uh, and did the scores for some of his early films, including, mm-hmm. you know, She's Gotta Have It School Days and Do the Right Thing. It, it's an amazing, this yeah. is just an incredible film. I loved going back and watching it again. Me too. This was just a movie that, you know, it. that's also, you know, we keep talking about like kind of those beautiful things about movies. That's one of the things about this movie that is so incredible is that my family growing up was not like this at all. I came from a very small family, mm-hmm. but simultaneously there is, there was so much stuff there when they talk about parental relationships and just being a child mm-hmm. that you don't have to have 
had that be a mirror of your life to be able to still relate to. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think is so incredible about this movie is that like, I didn't necessarily relate to every aspect of the community aspect of the film mm -hmm. or to even necessarily the family aspect of the film. Mm -hmm. But that feeling of being a kid yeah. in the summer yeah. just like speaks to me. Yes. You know, even when I first saw it yeah. as a kid during the summer. Yeah. I think I saw this movie probably around like 2005-ish mm -hmm. when I started watching all of Spike Lee's films. Okay. Yeah, I saw this and, when, I, when I was little. Yeah. Because of, you know... We were, like I said, a big movie family and yeah. stuff. And if my dad saw something he really liked, he just had yeah. us all watch it and go see it. So I saw it from probably around 1994 is yeah. when I actually saw it. <laughs> and like, I just remember the first time that I saw this movie, this mm -hmm. one. and Because I watched all of his movies pretty much in order. Yeah. And when I got to this one, I was like, this is, yeah. this is something special. Yeah. And then I felt that again when I got to the 25th yeah. hour. And I mean, it's... It's an incredible film, and uh, in terms of his filmography, I think a deeply underrated one. Yes, that it is. We also saw this one on Tubi mm -hmm. as well. We did. So it's it's relatively accessible. Yeah. Um, I think it's also on like Amazon Prime or something. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. So I guess, uh, do you want to recap our, our picks really quick? Yes, let's recap our picks. So for mine, I had picked uh, The Big Boss from 1971, starring Bruce Lee. Track of the Cat from 1954, starring uh, Robert Mitchum, William Hopper, and Tab Hunter. Uh, Cutter's Way from 1981, starring Jeff Bridges and John Hurd. Um, Blood Simple from 1984, starring Francis McDormand, Dan Hedaya, uh, M. Emmett Walsh, and John Getz. And Swamp Water from 1941, starring Dana Andrews, Walter Brennan, Walter Houston, and Ann Baxter. Okay, and my top five true gems was Welcome to the Dollhouse, which was 1995, um, with Heather Matarazzo, um, Brendan Sexton, Eric Mabius, and Matthew Faber. Um, my second pick was Love Streams, which was August 1984, director John Cassavetes, um, screenplay by John Cassavetes and Ted Allen, Gina Rollins, John Cassavetes, Diane Abbott, Seymour Cassell, and Al Rubin were the actors. Um, my third film was Paris, Texas. That was also in 1984, directed by Vim Vendors. Um, it was screenplayed by Vim Vendors and Sam Shepard and L.M. Kit Carson. The actors were Harry Dean Stanton, Dean Stockwell, Nastasia Kinski, Aurora Clemens, and uh, Hunter Carson. Um, my fourth one was Dreamland. Um, it was released in December of nineteen of two thousand and six. Um, director was Jason Masner. Um, the actors were Agnes Bruckner, Kelly Garner, Justin Long, John Corbett, Gina Kirshen, Chris Mulkey, Lucas Raines, and Brian Klugman. Um, and then my last and final film. Um, Crooklyn was 1994, May of 1994. Director Spike Lee. It was written and co-written by him and his brother and sister. The actors were um, Alfred Woodard, uh, Delroy Lindo, Spike Lee, and Zelda Harris, to name a few. Yep. And David Patrick Kelly also. Oh, yes. David Patrick was in there. From uh, Twin Peaks, which yeah. we mentioned earlier. And all kinds of other Yeah, stuff. and Isaiah Washington was in there as yep. well. But, yeah, just to name a few. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, so those are our true gems. Yeah. I hope that uh, everybody checks out some of these movies and uh, gets a kick out of them the same way that we did. Yeah. And um, 
I guess, uh, mentioning what we got coming up next, we are doing our top 10 of 2022 ahead of the awards season. We're also going to talk a little bit about a couple of movies that are coming up that we're excited about and Mm -hmm. um, kind of give some honorable mentions in there, too, of other things that we saw in the year that didn't necessarily make the top 10. And uh, after that, we'll be back to kind of more regular kind of normal kind of uh, programming yeah Yeah. and um yeah so we're excited to do all of that and uh thank you for tuning to the film cafeteria do you have any final thoughts no just i just recommend all these movies you know try to watch them they're real true gems um they bring you into a world of leon and they're really great so yeah check them out absolutely thank you guys so much i'm scott and i'm Brittany. we'll see you next time (laughs) 